my fellow Westorians, welcome back to History of Westeros podcast. I hope wherever you are now, wherever you're listening, and why ever you listen, whether it's to immerse yourself, whether it's for distraction, whether it's for fun, whatever your draw is, we hope we do an extra good job today for you. It is a holiday weekend, as this is recording on April. <laughs> I keep calling May, April. I've been doing that all month. It's like calling the year, you know, when you can't get used to what year it is. Or like January, you're always calling it the year before. I seem to have that problem with this being May. May. Now, as soon as it switches to June, I'll probably start calling it May. I'm just one month behind, apparently. You may call it June. <laughs> hey, uh, being, being behind in, in chronologically in my brain, it works out well for, for focusing on historical topics, though, doesn't it? Mm, my mind's always in the past. <laughs> so, hey, so I'm, I've got the right mindset. Yeah, that's it. Yeah, that's, that's what I'll say. And Sean, you've got the right beverage, whatever it is. It looked, I, I, could, I spied it right before we started. It looked pinkish purplish sort of. Yeah, yeah, pinkish purple. It's the protein berry naked drink the with the uh, orange mango bang drink. Bango. Mango bango. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> That's pretty good. That doesn't sound too bad it's, either. It's very good. <laughs> <laughs> Whoa. Wait, I don't get it. Now, the maybe it's just because we do this every week, but your drinks are starting to sound less weird to me. You know, maybe either they are getting less weird or they just the novelty is wearing off for me a little bit. I don't know. <laughs> I think the novelty is wearing off. I, I've, I've mixed it up more lately when I discovered the bang drinks. So I, you know, I don't know if that makes it more or less weird. But. Yeah. <laughs> this Friday, your favorite emotions are back on the big screen in Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. It's time to greet your Team Riley. It's anger. Let me at him. Ah! Fear. Safety checklist is complete. Disgust. Ew, ew. Ugh! Sadness is in the house. Oh, no. I'm anxiety. I'm one of Riley's new emotions. Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. There's a part two? We're going! Ready PG. Parental guidance suggested. Only in theaters Friday. Get tickets now. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end, what will I become? Senwa Saga, Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. Shout out to Nina, goodqueenally.tumblr.com. That's one L in Alley. The latest blog post from her is about Justin Massey and his bad luck. Couldn't happen to a nicer person. He's got a whole bunch of plans that keep getting interrupted whether it's heading to the wall to deliver Arya, who isn't really Arya, to John, who has just been stabbed, whether it's, yeah, there's, well, well, you can read the blog post to find out the rest of them. It's a good list, and it's very amusing. A little lighthearted, but still heavy on detail. As usual, you can ask us questions, whether live or ahead of time. You can join the discussion on Facebook or Discord or Twitter. Those are the main places these days. We used to have more spots, but we've narrowed it down a bit. 
One of them didn't work out too well. The other just vanished as far as the platform goes. It had nothing to do with us. So <laughs> it's good to have it a little smaller. Too many places. It's better to have it focused in a couple areas. So that kind of worked out for us. It's yeah, like, but, but clearly not in one area because otherwise you get burned by a platform being removed. Yeah, that's true. I don't think Discord or Facebook are going away anytime no. soon. Maybe it'd be better if Facebook did go away, but <laughs> it's not very likely, is it? <laughs> in the Discord, there have been two things. One, there's been the people doing a Song of Ice and Fire tier ratings, which sorts it by tiers. Um, that's not a flick chart type thing. Two, there I shared the Song of Ice and Fire sorter.tumblr.com, which is a flick chart style sorter, which you would probably uh, be a fan of, Sean. It really is hard. To, I think I might have. might have done it for Game of Thrones or maybe for a Song of Ice and Fire. I'm not sure. Yes. It's Some very version of it. It would have been a long it's time ago. And, characters, yeah. Uh, but yeah, no, it really is interesting to, you know, stare at Danny versus Bran and really think about why you would want one rated higher than the other. Yep. I love Flickchart. It's a great tool. It really makes you think. It's, you know, it might be hard to, com- like, it might be easy to compare you know, A New Hope to Empire Strikes Back or Star Wars to Star Trek or something. But what if you're trying to compare, I don't know, Beauty and the Beast to Lawrence of Arabia? Or, <laughs> you know, it's just something that's more diverse. Uh, whether it's something that's similar or diverse, Trying to think about why you choose one over the other is interesting. Makes you think about what your standards are. Yeah, and, it makes you um, evaluate like what you appreciate in a movie. Yeah. Whereas like and, if you uh, were to just list out your top 10 characters or top 10 movies, you might put some good amount of critical thought into it, but probably you aren't pitting them against each other one by one in order to get a list. So it, it does encourage a different sort of critical thinking. Yeah, and a lot of times when someone says that's my favorite movie or my favorite character, right? What they or well, usually there's several they would say that about. Usually you even know that and you say one of my favorites. <laughs> but what if you had to be pinned down? Who's number four and who's number five? What's the order exactly? How do you decide? And things like these, like chart or this sort of you're talking about, kind of like sometimes it's easy. You know, it's Joffrey and Sansa. Okay, Sansa, easy. But sometimes it's. <laughs> You know, John or Danny or two that are close or that you like a lot. And you have to think about if you had to pick. And it's not so much important which is four, which is five, but what's making you decide? Yeah. You know, what's, what are the factors that go into that? That's pretty good. It's like, yeah, it's kind of like you, you learn a little bit about yourself with that. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. Exactly. All right. Well, let's get to it. The trivia question, hat tip to Nina for this one. She asked me this one while we were just discussing some different details of this, uh, of this episode. And I couldn't think of it. Now, I, that might imply it's tougher than it is. It's not as tough. It's, it's actually on the... I mean, our questions are pretty tough, but it's on the lighter end, I think. I'm just not super strong with sigils. What other house that we know of has a bare sigil? Now, there's a lot of houses where we just don't know their sigil. It just it hasn't been revealed. But other than House Mormont, there's one for sure we know of that has a bare sigil. Who is it? Answer at the end, as usual. I'm going to guess... House Bear. <laughs> house Bear. Whoa. Okay, so there's two houses. I forgot all about them. How did I forget House Bear? No, no. As far as we know, there's no House Bear. There probably should be. It's funny. House Lion really is House Lannister. They're just lying about everything. <laughs> just lying around, sitting on their money. Yeah. <laughs> like a lot of peoples we've seen throughout Westeros and, and beyond, and in the real world, humans are partially a product of their environment. Only a Lannister can love the rock, we said or quoted a few characters last week saying, and all of them were Lannisters. The Kranigman, a more extreme case of adaptation perhaps, but Bear Island, it's up there. 
It's a very demanding, difficult, dangerous place. The natural environment is killer, and so are the nearby humans. Though some feel it more than others, winter hits everywhere pretty badly in the north, but Bear Island is isolated a bit and pretty far to the north. So their winters are likely amongst the worst. And as for those nearby dangerous humans, well, some of the areas of the north are subject to free poke raids. Some areas are subject to the ironborn. Bear Island gets both. How lucky. And it's not just normal free folk. They live near the frozen shore, which is where an inordinate number of cannibals live. So when you're talking about getting raided by free folk, it's cannibal free folk. I mean, it's some of the worst, like some of the scariest. Like they're going to catch you. If you're a woman, they'll carry you off to make children. If you're not, they'll carry you off to eat you. So it's really awful. So this is part of why the Bear Islanders are the way they are. They don't really have time for joking around or leisure. They got to be prepared for pirates and cannibals. And not to mention, of course, you know, the bears, right? <laughs> There's bears in the winter. <laughs> yeah. So let's go through real quick. Here's, here's what we're going to talk about today. We're going to do our usual first mentions. Then we'll talk about some geography, a little bit of history. Longclaw, of course, has to come up. The former House Mormont sword that they gave to John. People and culture, characters, themes, and outlook, meaning what we could expect from some of these characters were House Mormont and the rest of the series. A little bit about Mormont skin changers, the possibility there. Then some miscellaneous stuff about bears in the world of Westeros and beyond. Then some stuff about real bears, just a little bit. And then some stuff about real bear islands. Yes, bear islands, plural. There's more than one bear island in the real world. So that'll be fun to close out with. It's the opposite of last week. Last week, we started with the real world stuff and worked our way into the Song of Ice and Fire. This time, we're doing it the opposite. It's just the way it seemed to fit best. We'll start off with a quote from the first mentions. This is a Game of Thrones Eddard 2. Would that I might forget him, Ned said bluntly. The Mormonts of Bear Island were an old house, proud and honorable, but their lands were cold and distant and poor. So Jorah had tried to swell the family's coffers by selling some poachers to a Tyrashi slaver. As the Mormonts were bannermen to the Starks, his crime had dishonored the North. Ned had made the long journey west to Bear Island, only to find when he arrived that Jorah had taken ship beyond the reach of ice and the king's justice. Five years had passed since then. Yeah, so Mormont of Bear Island mentioned all at once there. And of course, Jorah will be a big part of this episode. Nina says, I can imagine that Ned considered Jorah's crime an even grosser insult than it otherwise might have been given the context of both Bear Island and the Mormonts generally and Jorah specifically. What she means here is that Mormont is no ordinary house in the North. They have a history of staunch service. Maybe like Manderley, except for different reasons. And Manderley is really different than Mormont, but they're really loyal. And they have stood for House Stark really stoutly for a long time. Imagine that the Manderleys turn bad. They start selling slaves or something like Mormont did. That's the kind of insult kind of shame that Jorah brought on his house that may not have been clear from the get-go. The more you read about Mormont's history and how important they are to the North, the more of a big deal it is. Nina points out it's also a little bit worse because he, more so than average, would understand the need for helping out the wall. Yes. His, his dad is up there as a Lord Commander. And what do you usually do with criminals? You send them to, send the, them wall. to the wall. Yeah. So for Jorah to sell the criminals in a slavery, not only is it like 
part of why they have such a strong loyalty to the to the Starks is because they've protected them from the Ironborn who come and enslave them. Yes. Right. So yes. there's such like of all people, you know, it's worse for him to have done. It's, yeah, he's he's doing what their enemies do. The thing that they think their enemies are are the worst for doing. Yeah, it's really bad. It's really bad. And that's that's going to explain a lot of the things that come because of this. Because it's it may not have set in to a lot of readers just how big a deal this was. It's another example of maybe some of the answer coming out before the full riddle. It's not a riddle per se, but it is the level of damage Jorah did isn't clear from the beginning. It's, it's on reread, you're like, oh, wow, yeah. Now that I've read the whole books, you know, I've seen all this, it's, wow, yeah, it's a big deal. But even without, without reading The World of Ice and Fire, even some of that isn't clear. So yeah, so Nina continues here saying they've, like you said, Sean, they are a position of defense. If you looked at it as like a theme of House Mormont, you got all these people that are defenders, protectors, and they've upheld these values, these virtues for a long time. And like House Mormont got Bear Island from the Starks. They were given it to. Them. It wasn't like, say, one of these other houses that had carved out their own spot and then eventually submitted to House Stark. That's what most of the North did. But Mormons, no. <laughs> Mor- it was w- the Woodfoots had it first. They were wiped out by the Ironborn. Eventually, the Starks took it away and gave it to House Mormont to hold and protect. So there's, there's this gr- level of gratitude that's similar to the Manderleys who were given a new home in the north. So you can live here now. Build yourself a castle here. This is basically what happened with the Mormonts. So yeah, it's a, it's a real slap in the face to, to the Starks, what Mormont did. Not to mention that we've seen what slaves go for. It's not like they sell for some huge amount. This was a relatively small amount of money that Jorah was standing to get for this huge downfall, right? Like it was not, the risk reward was, yeah, not good. <laughs> yeah, it might have, he might have felt desperate if he was in debt and embarrassed and ashamed and maybe even foresee worse things coming based on all that. But it, it wasn't the solution to all his problems. And there's a decent chance if he hadn't been caught for this, he might have done it more. It might have set a precedence and it might have, you know, like it would have got worse. You probably, anyway. Yeah. It's also just cruel. I mean, Poaching? You go, you're enslaved for poaching? I mean, geez. Proportionate punishment. Yeah. I mean, it's just cruel. Yeah. I mean, getting sent to the wall for poaching is also pretty harsh, but that's at least accepted. At least you're doing a service for the realm. I mean, Will, the prologue POV character, was a poacher. That's why he was at the wall. Mm -hmm. And you brought up how it's stealing from the wall. Like, you're stealing from the north when you don't send criminals there. Maybe like draft dodging. You know, it's, it's manpower for the wall that you're keeping for yourself. It's, it's worse than draft dodging because you're also profiting off of it. So yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah imagine like you know, paying, like bribing soldiers not to sign up <laughs> for the draft or something. It's really pretty bad. <laughs> it is something uh, not to take away from your point, but we did, I think it might've been when we were talking about Dunkin' Egg, but the idea that poaching is, it can be worse of a crime than you realize. Sure. Because on some level, the reason poaching exists is because there's sort of a, an allocation, a, a system to figure out how much food everyone's going to get. Yeah. Does that make yeah, sense? Yeah. And so if someone kills, you know, two deer uh, or, or whatever on someone's land, that two deer might have been what was going to feed the family that lived in that land. And now that family might starve to death. Maybe the community will come together and save them. But if everyone's just doing this all the time, people can't plan and they might end up starving. It's a little worse to, for there to be an extreme punishment for poaching like 
in the king's force. It's yeah. a wealthy person who has plenty of food and resources exactly, and they yeah. want to punish a poacher. But it, he might have been poaching on someone on Bear Island. Imagine resources. A little yeah, there's no scarce. king's land no there. Probably aren't living this luxury yeah. life. Yeah, they live yeah. in a long haul with made of wood. So yeah, they're definitely not rich. Yeah, I mean, they're richer than everyone else on the island. But that doesn't mean they're, they're swimming in it. Yeah. So that's, that's a very good point, Sean. Th- I mean, like conversely, I said, though, with that, like, that still means that it's a, if it's, it's a matter of survival, then poaching is more serious. Conversely, for the person who poaches, they needed it more than maybe the person who did it in the King Forest. Entirely possible, yeah. If that's why they're doing it, which yeah. we don't know if they get a trial and stuff. Who knows if Jorah gave them a trial? But if they were poaching because they were starving, more justifiable than if they were poaching to sell it to some market. Yeah. And to add to the shame even more, Gior took the black on purpose. Like he, he voluntarily took it because, you know, I'm ending my life, winding it down. I'm going to end it in service to the North. And then Jorah just, you know, shames all that, just ruins it. <laughs> Pretty bad. There's no mention of House Mormon in the world of Rest of Fire, but a lot of mentions of Bear Island. Here's the first from the World of Rest of Fire, Kings of Winter section. The heads of the slain, the hungry wolf, claimed as prizes, carrying them back to Westeros and planting them on spikes along his own coasts as a warning to other would-be conquerors. Later, in his blood-drenched reign, he himself conquered the Three Sisters and landed an army on the Fingers. But these conquests did not long endure. King Theon also fought the Ironborn in the West, driving them from Cape Kraken and Bear Island, put down a rebellion in the Rills, and joined the Night's Watch in an incursion beyond the wall that broke the power of the wildlings for a generation. Now, Theon Stark will come up at least once more in this episode. He's one of the more famous Stark kings of history. So he's the one that uh, freed Bear Island from one of these long stretches of Ironborn rule. And that's a really big deal. Think about Bear Island as a defense. Well, think about it as in its opposite role. The Ironborn have to sail a pretty long way to get to the north to raid it. But if they're at Bear Island to start, they can just hop over. It's really close. It's, it's a, roughly the distance of Skagos to the northern coast on the other side. So it's pretty close. Or they could sail from the Iron Islands, then stop at Bear Island, refresh, and then reload and then attack. Nice, fresh, and ready to pillage, right? It's, it's a, if you row or sail all that way and then you know, attack some villagers, it's, you know, you're a little more tired. So it's how a smart reaver starts their day. Nice and well-rested and not after a hugely long journey. And if they get damaged or hurt during the raid, it's a place to go quickly to recover. Maybe they can sell their loot there. It's just, it's bad for the North to have a pirate base right offshore like that. I mean, it, it doesn't require a whole lot of explanation to see why that would be dangerous. So in other words, it's either a fantastic staging base for assaults or one of the best defenses against that. <laughs> so it's one or the other. A big swing for how good or bad it can be. Yeah, yeah. It's a real, it's a huge swing one way or the other. Nina says it's inexplicable, except that maybe for Balon not being super smart in the first place, or maybe a bit racist. Who knows? He just doesn't think much of those people. Balon d- didn't attempt to take Bear Islands during his conquest. It seems like it would have been a smart secondary target, if not co-primary to Moat Kalen. They would have really had at least the western coast of, of the north on full lockdown. Would have made it a lot harder for Stannis to take back Deepwood Mott, things like that. But, you know, Balon's plan wasn't that smart in the first place. You know, it's 
maybe not inexplicable, just so much as just another reason Balon's plan wasn't so good. That's a consistent aspect of it. Yeah. I don't want to do too much to defend Balon, but it could be that he thought he could get Bear Island after the fact that he wanted to move on to mainland now while he could. Maybe, maybe also he didn't necessarily expect to capture and control all this. He's just angling for terms. Like, no, remember, he, he, back no, remember he wanted it all. His plan was to take the whole North and keep it. Yeah. As Asha said, there's just too many Northmen. <laughs> it's just full of Northmen. Like, how are we going to hold that? But as we'll see in history, the Northmen, ha- I mean, the Ironborn have had success holding Bear Island and the West Coast of the North because that's where they're able to funnel their strength into. Once you get inland, it gets more difficult. That's the part of Balon's plan that was foolish. If he had just stuck to the coasts, the islands and all that, eh, he might have been onto something because that had succeeded before for prior Ironborn kings. And uh, yeah, but he was trying to do something that no one had ever done before and for good reason no one had ever done it before. And so this com- combination of constant vigilance of living under both Northern and Ironborn rule, because some of these Ironborn rules, this is, we're not talking about just like a few months. We're talking about generations of Ironborn rule at different times in history. Not necessarily recent, but substantial lengths of time. And neither the North or the Ironborn are mild ruler styles. Historically speaking, they're, they're different, but they're, neither of them are soft, right? Not to mention those free folk that I mentioned. And again, those winters. So again, tough, determined people. They can't, they can't afford to be otherwise. It's certainly a recurring feature of Mormont's past and present. And we've seen more Mormonts than you might realize. When we lay it all out, you might be like, yeah, that's actually more than I would have thought. Gior and Jor at the start, and then you get Mage Mormont pretty quickly. Daisy as well, Alisan and Liana, plus a few others who don't appear on screen to get mentioned. There's Lyra and Jorel, nicknamed Jory, which is a little confusing because you might think of Jory as a guy's name because of Jory Cassell. But Jorel is a girl. And there's also some other Mormonts like Alisan's has a son and a daughter, but she chooses not to give their names when talking to Asha. Uh, She also doesn't reveal her husband, which is a fun little uh, bit we'll talk about later, referring to it as a bear. (laughs) So geography, it's in the Bay of Ice, which is a very cold place, as you might guess by the name. (laughs) And here is Jorah himself describing it. The Clash of Kings, Danny One. Before I read the quote, I wanted to ask, how, how many Mormonts was it? How many Mormonts have we seen on page? That was six. six? Yeah. How many Tyrells have we seen? Mm, on page? There's those cousins. There's Mega and Ala. I'm not sure, Eleanor. actually. There's Mega, Eleanor, uh, you know, Those Marjorie, cousins might... If you count Elena... It's close, yeah. That's a major... And you're like a major player in in the world and the story. Yeah, and there's a lot of them. Like, there's way more Tyrells that have been mentioned that haven't been seen yet, like Garth. They both have green sigils. The Maester. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. And of course, there's Leo also, who we have seen him too, but that's he's another branch. But still, yeah, there's a lot of Tyrells. Like, in the appendix, there's a a ton. Again, you know, talking about characters we've seen on page, I think they're pretty close. Like, we don't get nearly as much airtime, but they're close to the Lannisters also, for example. Yeah, that's true. You're right. That's that's a very good example. Yeah, and um, and it, but in in the case, what's interesting is in the case of those houses, it's because there's like multiple branches. This is mostly just one central Mormont branch. We're not hearing about like Mormont cousins, which which they I probably mean, exist. We just aren't hearing about them. I think is it it is interesting to see George has put a lot of effort into even these tertiary. Yeah, houses. yeah. I mean, they, yeah, and they're very. I mean, as their role implies, like being staunch defenders, the the North goes off to war. It's their kind of their code of ethics to be right there, be a part of it. 
And even when their king is dead, remember, Leon is like, no, we only follow Stark. So yeah, they're really staunch in that regard, and you appreciate that. It makes them stand out a bit. They're, you know, they're at the forefront of Northern Essos, I'd say. Prepping for, this episode, <laughs> I, prepping for this episode, I started to develop this thought in my mind. I wonder if, if George intended that House Mormont has been hibernating. Hey! And they're about to come more to the forefront. Maybe get more aggressive instead of being defensive. Yeah, hmm, we'll yeah. see. Good call. Well, here's the quote again. This is a, this anyway. is a Clash of Kings, Danny One. Bear Island is beautiful, but remote. Imagine old gnarled oaks and tall pines, flowering thorn bushes, gray stones bearded with moss, little creeks running icy down steep hillsides. The Hall of the Mormonts is built of huge logs and surrounded by an earthen palisade. Aside from a few crofters, my people live along the coasts and fish the seas. Island lies far to the north, and our winters are more terrible than you can imagine, Khaleesi. It's shaped a bit like a squat horseshoe with the points facing south. So it's not like a, a straight, an unusually shaped island. So as, it's, as he says, there are very few people inland, which is too bad because the coasts are where, you know, where people get raided and where a lot of the danger is. But there's just no choice, I suppose. You've got to make a living on the coast. You've got to fish and all that. And also, according to the World of Ice and Fire app, the island is, quote, teeming with bears, which may be part of the reason not that many people live inland. The bears might be of the aggressive sort, or some of them might be of the aggressive sort. So there might be other reasons <laughs> to avoid that uh, wooded interior region. Nearest other noble house are the Glovers of Deepwood Mott. They're pretty much directly south. You can almost draw a straight line south from Bear Island, and, you, and you'll end up at Deepwood Mott. Jorah's first wife was a Glover. She died before, and then he married Liness a bit later, Liness Hightower. And, and you know, it's an interesting little feature of the area. Not only are those cannibal tribes not far by, because the, the distance between the frozen shore and, the, and Bear Island isn't that far, but it's just a quirk of, of geography that the frozen shore is farther south than the wall. Just the way it works out, there's a big bay that separates the, that area. So these people are able to raft sort of southeast and land south of the wall pretty easily. So it's something probably a problem for the Night's Watch over there is the fact that it's easier to evade the wall on that side. But to date, we haven't seen the wall over there. We've only seen Castle Black. We haven't seen Shadow, the Shadow Tower. We've heard about it, but if we ever do see it, well, or, or in any other circumstance, that's probably about a feature of it. Jorah says it's about a fortnight to sail from Lannisport to Bear Island. So gives you a little idea of, of the distance, roughly. And of course, he was talking about that in reference to winning that tournament at Lannisport. And that's where he attracted the attention of Liness. Hightower won her hand, as his sister will put it later. He won her an attorney. <laughs> kind of was like, well, that's true. <laughs> it's not explicitly true, but it's sort of true. And, of course, she really, really didn't like it there, being a, a, a pampered lady of the South, coming from Old Town. Well, A Clash of Kings Danny One continues with this. My home was a great disappointment to Liness. It was too cold, too damp, too far away. My castle no more than a wooden long haul. We had no masks, no mummer shows, no balls or fairs. Seasons might pass without a singer ever coming to play for us, and there's not a goldsmith on the island. 
Despite this, Danny notices that he speaks of his home with longing, which is, again, like the whole only a Lannister could love the rock moment because he's not describing a place that sounds good. <laughs> it doesn't sound like, like, oh, let's go there, you know? But he still likes it. He, and of course, some of it is his shame of he knows he can't go back. You know, he's been exiled. He, his own actions cost him of that, even though he blames Ned Stark for it. It's pretty clear projection there, dude. You broke the law, not Ned Stark. He loves his home even as he recognizes how he can tell himself pretty clearly, yeah, my wife didn't like it. I can understand why she didn't like it, but it was all we had. I did my best to make her like it, but it was never going to work. And here is, in fact, that conversation between Daisy and Lady Mage. We've got it split in half here, and it gives us a little detail. There's a carving on our gate, said Daisy. A woman in a bare skin with a child in one arm suckling at her breast. In the other hand, she holds a battle axe. She's no proper lady, that one. But I always loved her. Not the first time we'll see a Mormont woman with an axe in this episode either, but there's more to that quote. It continues here. My nephew, Jorah, brought home a proper lady once, said Lady Mage. He won her an attorney. How she hated that carving. I and all the rest, said Daisy. She had hair like spun gold, that Liness, skin like cream, but her soft hands were never made for axes. Yeah, this lady carved on the door is an aspirational figure. Like this is the ideal Bear Island woman because of the environment requires this sort of attitude. Like you have to be a mother and a warrior. This, this environment doesn't give you the luxury. And that's how they would think of it as a luxury of just being a mother or just... In, in Lanessa's case, she probably wouldn't even do that. She'd probably have servants helping her with a lot of the mothering. If she had lived in Old Town continuously, she probably saw a lot of kids raised. She was probably raised that way. She was probably raised with an inordinate number of servants taking care of a lot of the matronly duties that a mother would normally do. So this is a difficult thing. You can understand why Lanessa doesn't like it. Like, I'm not overly sympathetic to an extremely pampered rich person like that, but I do get it. I do think... This is an aspirational figure here, and Liness is just not that. And she recognizes that. Like, Liness sees that. Like, this is what a bare island woman's supposed to be like. It's impossible for her to ever be that way. She could start, she could have start trying right then to be like that, and it never would have happened. It's something you have to be raised into. I imagine some of the women on Bear Island would like to be able to put that axe down. Yeah. Yeah. You know, they won't probably don't, they would rather have both hands on her baby or one hand on each baby <laughs> yeah, probably, or yeah. a hand on a paintbrush and a baby in the other or something. But, but that's not the life they live. Uh, so you have to be realistic about what their life is and what they, you know, have to do, what they have to deal with and what that requires of them, what their circumstances need them to uh, rise above. And Liness just, yeah, couldn't fit into that. And I, it's not a surprise that she couldn't fit into that, given her upbringing and everything. So let's talk a little bit of history. Mm, ruled by House Woodfoot, as I said at the beginning, they are one of the suggested houses for Night King. But of course, Nan says it was Stark. So the Ironborn come and wipe them out, wipe out House Woodfoot, just slaughter the Woodfoots entirely and rule for a while, maybe several centuries. It's not clear. Nina says, small wonder the Iron Board should have looked to Bear Island with the Ironborn soon exhausting the timber stores on Orkmont. They needed somewhere else to supply their likely almost constant demand for wood for their longships. And where would be the first place to look but Bear Island, rich in trees and easily accessible by sea. In other words, it's a place they could attack and not necessarily draw the attention of the mainland. And or if the mainland does find out, well, they 
they're seamen. They can hold off an assault. It's, it's easier for them to defend an island than it would be to defend a mainland possession that they've taken. And Nina's point about the need for trees is a really, really important point. We've heard the Ironborn, as she says, they exhausted most of the timber on the island and they have a huge demand for it. So the North is, well, there's lots of trees there and Jorah explicitly says, yeah, we've got a lot of, got a lot of trees and bears, not much else. And well, those trees are really valuable if you're in the shipbuilding business and that's certainly what the Ironborn are. They would have another value too to keeping fires lit. That's something that's yeah, sure. Good point, uh, yeah. underestimated about the nature of humans surviving and forests not. <laughs> yeah, that's that's very true. Yeah, fuel to uh, fuel for the fire. Indeed, it's true. They need warmth. Ironborn may have cold, cold hearts, but they need that fire to keep them warm. <laughs> <laughs> it's said that after Gerald the Great's invasion, that Gerald the Great is a king of Castle Rock, not to be confused with Gerald the Golden. This is a king, not a lord. He was a particularly active Lannister king and he assaulted the Ironborn. Like he attacked their islands and set them back a generation or two and actually more so than that. And that was the start of the crumbling of their Western hegemony over the coasts that ran all the way from the Arbor to Bear Island for quite a while. It was, what's that line that... Aaron says it used to be that, you know, wherever the sound of the waves could be heard, we were supreme. And this was the era he's referring to. And so quite a while ago, but you can see why it was the case that the mainland wasn't as organized, wasn't as structured. The defenses weren't as thorough or as prepared or as organized or as used to overcoming what they had to overcome here. But Gerald the Great, his assault on Pike and other islands loosened the hold over these other places. They, they lost the arbor and Flint's Finger and Bear Island. Some of those they got back eventually, but clearly not the arbor or Bear Island. Well, they did get Bear Island back eventually, but then they lost it again. I don't think they ever got the arbor back again, but maybe, maybe briefly. And right now, Euron's working on that. You know, maybe that's about to change. <laughs> you know, it's like the big swing. We talk about having Bear Island or not having Bear Island, an attack on the Ironborn directly not only is it the setback they face there, but in the time that they recover, the coastal territories build up more of a defense. So when they do come again, it's there's more of a force waiting for them. And so on. That's very true, yeah. Nina also points out that Ironborn rule of Bear Island is the reason the sigil of House Hor includes a pine tree. The pine tree, along with the raven and grape cluster, symbolize the extent of the Ironborn empire. So this, in other words, the sigil is, is carved into quarters and there's the raven to show the north, the grapes for the arbor, the pine tree for, for Bear Island, and then the other sigil was for themselves uh, to represent the Iron Island. So it's like the four regions they dominated from north to south, to the coast, to their homeland. And that sigil is still around today, even though House Horror is not entirely extinct, but they're nothing like what they were. So here's uh, another quote that refers to King Theon, and some of the business happening in that area. The west coast of the north has also often been beset by reavers, and several of the Hungry Wolf's wars were forced upon him when longships out of Great Wick, Old Wick, Pike, and Orkmont descended upon his western coast beneath the banners of Harrig Hor, king of the Iron Islands. For a time, the stony shore did fealty to Harrig and his ironmen. Swaths of the wolf's wood were nothing but ashes, and Bear Island was a base for reaving. Ruled by Herrig's black-hearted son, 
the Ravos the Raper. Though Theon Stark slew Ravos with his own hand and expelled the Ironmen from his shores, they would return under Herrick's grandson, Eric the Eagle, and again under the old Kraken, Loron Greyjoy, who retook both Bear Island and Cape Kraken. King Roderick Stark reclaimed the first of those after the old Kraken's death, whilst his sons and grandsons battled for the latter. So he, in explaining why Bear Island is so valuable, both to the north as a defense or as an assault point for the Greyjoys or other Ironborn, you can see here an example of it going back and forth and why they fought over it so bitterly. And of course, it has to be its strategic value because as a point of resources, well, besides the timber, there's not much there to offer something for kings to fight over, right? It's not like there's gold mines or anything that <laughs> provides wealth. Again, other than the timber, which are probably worth more than gold to the ironborn when they, when they don't have other sources of it. So if you think about it that way, it's another reason to, to try to deprive them of shipbuilding resources, which could have a very positive a- outcome in terms of preventing future raids or at least softening them. You know, you'd rather be attacked by 20 long ships than 30. You know, I mean, you'd rather not be attacked at all. But yeah, better, that to, better that to reduce that number. Voron yeah. Greyjoy, I just want to say, is a name that's well set up for a who's on first style joke. <laughs> Loron Greyjoy. We have a whole episode on Loron Greyjoys. <laughs> that's pretty good. also reminds me of the Prince Morion that we mentioned, who yeah, was Moron. like an eye away from being Prince Moron. Yes. Well, this guy isn't necessarily dumb, but he's, he's, he's pretty close to Moron. He's one L from being a Moron. <laughs> one loss. <laughs> <laughs> moron Greyjoy (laughs) under the mold kraken yes Mm, the mold kraken don't don't breathe in his presence so yeah so lots of fighting over not just the west coast or not just Bear Island but the other regions around it but Bear Island of course crucial for the reasons we've outlined and you can see there how the western shores were such a serious and recurring problem so much back and forth there with the different Greyjoys and Krakens and their immediate descendants taking it back or losing it again. Nina says, this is Theon Stark demonstrating why so many houses of the North generally and the Mormons in particular have such an abiding loyalty to the Starks. It's probably accurate to say that the Stony Shore and certainly Bear Island did homage to the Ironborn out of fear. Their conquerors were people who literally believed the natives to be people of a lesser race fit only for slave labor in the service of the Ironborn. So Ironborn subjugation of Bear Island was not just a geopolitical threat to the Winterfell's borders, but it's an opportunity for King Theon to demonstrate that their fortunes are far better with someone of, of his ilk. He's a savior, a defender, someone aggressive towards the Ironborn, someone who doesn't believe in slavery. Maybe he's a harsh ruler, but clearly you can see why they would prefer him to the Ironborn. So when they lack the, the strength to overthrow the Ironborn themselves, meaning the people of Bear Island and Winterfell comes in, of course they're going to be grateful. Someone who's no longer enslaving them, lets them, you know, gives them an important job. You, know, you got to help us defend the North here. But that's honoring them, giving them an important role rather than leaving them to be thralls, right? Like, clearly you'd rather be not a thrall <laughs> than, you know, and, and have an important role. Like that sounds, it's not, it doesn't require much explanation there. So there is some real politic here which Theon can, King Theon could really exploit this if he wanted to. He probably wanted to do it anyway, but a politically savvy king would really emphasize this angle of I'm the savior, I'm the defender, I did all this stuff, follow me. 
you know, be loyal to me, you know, I'm the, I'm capable and all that. And like a Stannis, it's not through words, it's through deeds. He's not just saying, I'm the Stark, I can do this. No, he he did it. And people were following him, right? And and that's gonna come up later because, of course, Stannis and the Mormonts are an interesting uh, back and forth, but uh, we're not quite there yet. Nina also says, compare the feelings of the Manderleys, another family of deep, stark loyalty. Even after a thousand years, they're still grateful. This, the quote, they had taken them in and nourished them, protected them against our enemies when they were sore, beset, and friendless, hounded from their homes in peril of their lives. Yeah, similar to the Mormons. The Mormons didn't flee the South, but their homeland, they were beset. They needed protection against their enemies, etc. Here is another quote, uh, this time about Roderick Stark, who was mentioned at the end of that King Theon quote. The histories of the North claim that Roderick Stark won Bear Island back from the Ironborn in a wrestling match. And perhaps there is truth to this tale. The kings of the Iron Islands were often moved to prove their prowess and their right to wear the driftwood crown with feats of strength. More sober scholars call this into question, suggesting that if there was wrestling, it was with words. What is Eandel saying? People who believe that it was actually a wrestling match are drunk? Is he more sober scholars call this into question? Like drunk scholars <laughs> think that. <laughs> so Bran mentions this tale in The Clash of Kings. This isn't World of Ice and Fire only, but this that is the Clash, that is the World of Ice and Fire quote, but it is also brought up in Clash of Kings, to be clear. So is it an actual wrestling match or is this a euphemism for back and forth? Just they kept fighting over it and one would get a hold, then one, the other would get a hold and then back and forth. I could really see it either way. Let's go with Nina's take on this. She says, I'd be willing to believe this, this wrestling story is at least to some extent because I could see where Roderick Stark might have wanted to prove to the Ironborn on the Ironborn's own terms that he was their equal and could beat them as an equal. And... Yeah, and I tend to, I, I agree with this line of argument because, yeah, the Ironborn are very masculine and they do look down on other races. So if someone's let me fight you one-on-one, it would be shameful to turn that down. I don't know how such a challenge would have been issued. It would have to be very public so he couldn't avoid it. So everyone would have to know that he's turning it down so it forces him into it. I see you nodding there, Sean. This sounds, this kind of fits, doesn't it? I, I totally agree. I think it was an actual wrestling match. I could see that might even be part of the agreement is a, they're not willing to risk their lords being killed yeah. over this. But they can't back down for the... I don't know, does that make sense? I could see all sorts of angles. I think it adds up in a million ways. And it's wrestling, but not... Like, it's not a duel to the death. So, like, death shouldn't even be, like, a, a legitimate fear here, right? Exactly. There's... And, and the fact that we have this story about a wrestling match and not 30 others, it, if it was a metaphor, we would hear this metaphor all the time. Yeah, I mean, this time it really happened, and that's why we hear it this. Way. Yeah, we hear we do see the word wrestled used for like more often. Wrestled is used as a as a as a familiar metaphor. Like Small John Umber wrestled the table off of its eaves and threw it down to block the crossbow balls during the Red Wedding. I mean, that's George does use it that way, but that's a very straightforward metaphor. This is this is this is a much grander like fighting over territory. I, I haven't seen it used like that. So I like I we we hear that. the word wrestle used metaphorically. But how many other 
legendary stories of a wrestling match are there? Yeah. Right? Like none that, that I know of. Yeah, it's not. If it if a wrestling match was being used as a metaphor for how a dispute was settled, da, da, we would have heard it, that metaphor used that way other times, and we haven't. So. Good point. That's a good point. In general, we don't hear a lot about wrestling in The Song of Ice and Fire, The World of Ice and Fire. We do hear the Ibanese are really good at wrestling, and which implies that other, you know, no one can beat them. You know, they're really good at it, which kind of implies people have tried. And, you know, and it makes sense. Wrestling is such a basic sport. You know, it doesn't require any equipment. I mean, it's better if you have a little equipment, but <laughs> it's just mm-hmm. basically scrapping. You know, I'm sure it's a part of a lot of upbringing, especially for, for people that aren't trained, who don't have weapons to train with. Well, you got to learn yeah, to fight I, somehow. I think, yeah, I think it's interesting that there's wrestling for the Ibanese and for the Mormons because it's like similar cultures. Hmm. That's true. Northern Island people. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, isolated, cold. Yeah. And also, it's a less a sport for people that have, like I said, like gear, full equipment and things like that. Well, this is mostly a story about the nobles and about the nobility, right? You don't, so they're, maybe they're just, they just want to practice with swords. <laughs> now that said, there's examples in the real world. For example, was it Henry VIII wrestled the King of France? And that was portrayed on the show, The Tudors. But that really happened. <laughs> I didn't know that. Yeah. I mean, this was, I don't remember what this was over. I think this was just like, they were just trying to out-alpha each other. I don't, I don't think anything was on the line other than pride. Henry lost. The King of France was like much bigger than him and like longer. And he was mad. Well, at least the, the, the show portrayed him as being very mad. Like, I was, oh, I'll get you next time. You know, he was, just couldn't take, <laughs> couldn't handle losing. Yeah. It's one of the few times that, that, that actor always overacts, but Jonathan Rice Myers, George really hated him. George, George R. Myers was like, that guy's terrible. <laughs> was he in... Uh, yeah, in Vikings, yes. Last Kingdom? Vikings, Vikings yeah. He was right, that yeah. the really intense, yeah, zealous priest, priest which was a pretty good role for him because like I said, he can't tone it down. Yeah. So being a zealot fits. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, we're not here to talk about Jonathan Rice Myers, but there's another example of the Ironborn doing sort of overtly martial like things to prove themselves. Nina provides a really good example here in A Feast for Crows. Harris Harlaw's description of how he took Grey Shield. Remember what he did? He just walks up to the great castle Grey Shield, plops his banner down in the in this ground, and is like, "Come fight me!" <laughs> and so they did. One like he killed six of them, like one at a time. Six sons came to fight him, and he killed six of them, and then. The maester was like, before the seventh went out there, he's like, no, no, let's surrender before the youngest. You're clearly <laughs> going to lose. He beat the six older one. Don't do that. And, and Victorian was like, that's really good, man. Well done. Wow. Like, good, good job, man. Like, he was impressed. When is Victorian impressed? I mean. <laughs> he's just lucky that no one shot him with a crossbow or something. Right? But, uh... <laughs> but it goes to show, like, he's playing on, like, the, like, yeah, that's that's cow- that would have been cowardly, they're, you know. They're sort of pride as warder warriors or whatever. Look, you can't yeah, stop like one it. guy. I guess not. <laughs> yeah. Of course, this one guy also had a Valyrian steel blade, so that <laughs> helped too. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but really, but but yeah, Victorian was like, yeah, that's like the, the happiest I can remember Victorian in any of his chapters. He was like, oh, that's great. <laughs> so yeah, it just goes to show that <laughs> the way these guys operate. So yeah, I can see the wrestling match is not so unbelievable. I'm I'm totally with you there. Uh, it sounds like we all lean towards it being real. Is that where you're at too, Shea? Yeah, I always thought it was real. I would, I, say, I, I would say I never really considered that it wasn't real. Okay. Yeah, so we're, we're against Eandel on this one. He just is another one of examples. It just doesn't sound realistic to him, but we've got enough evidence elsewhere to suggest, eh, yeah, it is. maybe we just want to believe it, but it sounds like all four of us, plus Nina, so five of us. No, there's four of us. I'm counting myself twice. 
I was looking at the screen and was like, that guy, which is me, and I counted myself <laughs> twice. <laughs> I better drink more coffee. So uh, speaking of it as a base, apparently it wasn't just a base for the Ironborn to have ships for when they owned it, because we hear that when Aegon the Conqueror put down the Iron Islands, because they didn't obey, um, you know, <laughs> at first, Torrin Stark, who had bent the knee to Aegon, sent longships from Bear Island. It wasn't from anywhere else. It was explicitly from Bear Island. And it's entirely possible that the Ironborn are the ones who built the shipyards there. Given the timber and all that, they needed a new place to start building ships. And, and Starks are like, eh, repurpose this for our ships, you know? That would sort of explain why they were there and not you know, somewhere else. <clears throat> Changing from ships to swords, or a single sword anyway, let's talk about Longclaw. It's a bastard sword, thus perhaps most comparable size-wise to Blackfire, which has led to some theories, which we'll get to in a minute. Ice and Bright Roar and Heartsbane, I actually wrote Hearthsbane here, but <laughs> it's not right, it's Heartsbane, are great swords, while, say, Lady Forlorn and Oathkeeper are, are like normal longswords, while, say, Widow's Whale and Dark Sister are smaller longswords. Not short swords, but smaller longswords. House Mormon has had it for five centuries, and this is noteworthy for several reasons. First off, that's longer than House Stark had the Valyrian steel ice. Remember, there was an ice that wasn't Valyrian steel. Let's not get confused on that. But the Valyrian steel version of ice, they got a little over 400 years ago. But Mormon have had Longclaw for 500 years. Huh, that's interesting, right? Now, why would the Mormons have a Valyrian steel blade before the Starks? We have no idea. <laughs> Must have been some great deed. Again, they could not have possibly afforded it. There's no way they bought it. I mean, the Lannisters can't afford one. Or a new one, anyway. Right? They, they did have one originally. But given the houses that own Valyrian steel blades, there's just... There's no way they paid for it. <laughs> it's just like, I mean, Jorah was trying to sell s slaves to, you know, <laughs> just for a few extra you know, things for his wife. This is just doesn't add up. So it had to be taken in battle, which is possible. That's how the Harlaw guy got it. Or it was given to them for some great deed. Maybe, I mean, after all, we, they did some great deed to get Bear Island in the first place, probably. Or, or a series of great deeds. Or at least made themselves conspicuous enough in the uh, followers of House Stark to be, to get this reward not necessarily the Valyrian steel blade, because I don't know that it came from House Stark, but Bear Island did. And so this is, a, we've already got one case of them earning something grand with continued or, or specific service. So maybe that's what happened with this blade as well. Nina suggested maybe it's because in their roles as defender, they're defending against the Ironborn, they're defending against the cannibal tribes. Well, give them a, give them a fancy sword to help lead the, uh, the fight, to, to lead the, uh, the war effort, you know? Um, yeah, I could see that. It's a reasonable theory. I could see that, you know, they're more likely to fight people with a varied weapon. So, like, I could see that an Ironborn managed to acquire a Valyrian steel sword, came to raid on Bear Island, was killed by a Mormont who then claimed that sword. I like it. Like, anyway. That's my default. Yeah, I, I kind of, I tend to think, yeah. tend to think that whether, no matter who they took it from, that they, took it in battle rather than it was given and definitely versus bought. That's a great theory. I like that a lot because the, aren't, because the Mormons aren't going out into the world. They're rooted on Bear Island for the most part. Jorah is a real exception there. And whereas the Ironborn are going all over the place. 
It's not, it's a, it's not a two-way relationship here. It's not like the Ironborn attacked Bear Island, Bear Island attacks the Ironborn. Nope. <laughs> Bear Island holds Bear Island, and that's it. They don't go out and attack <laughs> the Ironborn or anything like that. It occurred to me that maybe there was some Mormont adventurer who traveled out. And yeah, blah, blah, blah. that's But it seems like we would know that story. We would know that person's name if that was the case. So Yeah. But if, uh, I, I, yeah, it does seem, I think Shay is saying, it's way more likely that the Ironborn who do venture out and are more likely to have captured one somewhere than also went to Bear Island, lost the battle, etc. The Ironborn do have the greatest source of taken Valyrian steel blades. Like, they have several, and they're all apparently taken from, from mainlanders. The Red Kraken's sword, which ended up with, you know, outside of House Greyjoy and then Red Rain. So there's at least two examples right there. And before it was called Long Tentacle. <laughs> long Tentacle. <laughs> <laughs> Instead of Long Claw. That's great. Ten Long Claws. Yes. <laughs> so that's really, this is a good theories there. Whether it was additional service by House Stark for some great deed or just Taken in battle. And taken in battle, one of the other reasons that's a great idea is that it wouldn't necessarily be some great stories. Yeah, this guy, these two guys fought or just after the battle was over, the, the lead Greyjoy was dead and, well, there's his sword. He was an arrow in the throat. It wasn't anything glorious or grand. Just battle happens. People die. There's the sword. You know, Mormont are the leaders. They get first pick of the loot. There they go. Yeah. I like also, it. in a sort of more of a seafaring-based battle, greater chance that someone might have just drowned. Sure. Yeah. Might have discovered with the sword later. Yeah, good point. With that in mind, you might think it's a little odd that they'd give it to John, like this valuable sword that they have no way to replace. But it also, this is why we were very emphatic about how big a deal Jorah's shame was. Gior didn't want to see the sword. Like he, he, it was given back to him by his sister Mage, who she didn't want to see it either. <laughs> So that like, just goes to show this is his really valuable weapon, but it just reminds them of the shame and their house pride is a big deal to them. And just Jorah's deed was such a big deal to them. They're like, yeah, we don't want this. This sword is just bad mojo now. You know, maybe further adding to our speculation from before, let's say the sword was found in battle. That's not exactly a point of pride. Like the person sure. who got it off the dead body randomly isn't going to make sure the histories know that he defeated someone and got this sword. Like, it might have been true. found by some underling presented to the Mormons. Hey, we found this on a battlefield. Oh, as long as I guess this is in our family now. But no one made a point of taking credit for it because they didn't feel they earn it. It's in line mm. with their sense of honor. And it would be more, it would be a lot, also a lot weirder to give it away if it had been a gift from House Stark. You know what I mean? So, like, and more likely to have heard about it yeah. from either Stark or my right. histories. Okay, yeah, I think we're getting somewhere. Although, here, I yeah. suppose if it was a gift from House Stark, you would be most likely to give it away to a star. Yeah, like <laughs> that's true. You're giving it back that, to the Starks. You know, On arguing. the other, other hand, it's not like John has heirs. It's not like it's permanently a Stark blade now. It's it's probably just the Night's Watch's sword now. It's kind of like they gave it to the Night's Watch, which is a yeah. lot different than giving it away entirely. And John might have just been like, I'll give it back. Like, when I die, give it back to the Mormons. On the show, he did try to give it back to Jorah. Now, I'm not saying that would happen in, in the books as well. After all, Jorah did leave it behind. Like, he was like, I'm not taking this. I, even I'm not so lost to sense or shame that I would take the, the family sword. Of course, they were like, you may as well have taken it, bro. We don't want it anymore because <laughs> of you. But think about Dark Sister. Dark Sister was given to Bloodraven to take to the wall, right? Some people thought that was a little odd, but I never thought it was too strange. Like, why not? Like, to me, the idea was when Bloodraven dies, it just 
gets sent back to the Red Keep. That didn't happen because it was lost beyond the wall. So we don't know for sure whether that was actually the plan. It could have also just stayed at the wall and been useful to arming some Night's Watchman with a really nice sword. That could be good. But yeah. It makes a lot of sense to me for Longclaw to stay at the wall. Like going from one Lord Commander to the next Lord Commander, well, maybe it should go to the next one, establish the precedent. It's also not as bad as it was at Bear Island. Bear Island... When's the last time they've been raided by the Ironborn? I don't. It's probably been quite a long time. They may. They may be thinking, okay, times have changed. They they still have to worry about the cannibal tribes. But do they have to worry about White Walkers? Because they have to worry about that at the wall. They do so now. Yeah. They, yeah. It would be good for them to have it, but I'm sure it's it's fair to assume they maybe didn't think about that possibility. And that you know that, those White Walkers hadn't been seen for eight thousand years, so yeah, it's fair to <laughs> give them a pass on that one. Yeah, so we have both Gior and Mage, the two elders of, of House Mormont at the time, just being like, nah, we don't want this thing. It's just too, it's tainted. It's tainted. So that's a pretty big deal. You wonder if it was offered to Daisy Mormont, who was, who was Mage's eldest daughter. She was killed at the Red Wedding, but she, either she didn't want it or she felt the same way about it. Like, nah, that sword's got, it's tainted. Feels the same way. Now, funny, just as a joke here, we have Sir Godry Faring saying to John, a man who bears Valyrian steel should use it for more than scratching his arse. Now, that's unassailable logic there. We can see that John, he must be speaking truth here. John clearly uses Longclaw to scratch his ass, which is a weird, really weird use for a Valyrian steel blade. It's pretty dangerous. I mean... His hand's burnt, so he can't scratch his ass with... It's a good you know, point. Yeah. It's a good point, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> too, but it's, it's a good point, but it's too sharp of a point. Yeah, anyway. <laughs> but it has been used for some pretty big kills, at least one of which is tragic, of course, Born Halfhand, but he, he also kills some wildings with... And Janos Slint, so on the other end of the spectrum, a good kill there. It was surely not the first time Longclaw slew Free Folk, though perhaps the first time it slew a member of the Night's Watch. One might think of deserters, you know, but Gior didn't use it, so Gior didn't execute any deserters with it. I don't think Slint was even worthy of being killed by a <laughs> Valerian steel. I should have used some rusted old blade that wasn't sharpened. and <laughs> Or just throw him off the wall, just toss him off the ledge. <laughs> Remember how Theon had to hack away? To, that's, yeah. what, that's what should have happened to Slint. <laughs> <laughs> and like you said, you brought up the others in the whites. So I, I doubt it's been used on another or a white, considering they've only had it for 500 years and the others haven't, hadn't been seen since long before that. So... That'll be interesting to see if a, if a Mormon or John wields it in that capacity. So, yeah. Anyway. Yeah, I wonder if Jorah and John will have that same moment like they had on the show. The, the whole return offering to return the sword. Now, that was just a courtesy, I think, you know, and I don't know if that'll come up in the books. I'm not, I don't have a strong feeling that one way or the other, but I do have a pretty strong feeling that John and Jorah will meet. Because I think Danny's going to go north. Jorah, I feel like Jorah's not going to be forgiven, but Danny will see his use as a soldier and you know she won't she'll be pragmatic about it and uh, anyway so jor and john is probably going to happen um in some way or another <laughs> yeah they're going to hook up they're going to be a shit yeah that's why that is why i laugh jonna jor and john is definitely happening joron moron joron loron we got all these things <laughs> we took it all we brought them to our land an endless night Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. 
My friends and fellow Westorians, some of you may recall one of the first ever episodes of History of Westeros was what back when when Steve was on the show. We had an episode with Otaku Assemble. Otaku Assemble was a YouTuber. I, I assume he still is, actually. I haven't kept up with him. Who got who went viral for his reaction to Ned Stark's death after season during season one? He just he had a very ranty but entertaining reaction to it, and it was neat. And so we had him on as a guest. We talked about Mormont and Clegane. And that episode, I don't think we still have it up anymore. It's kind of kind of wasn't recorded very well. But uh, some of y'all might remember that, so I wanted to acknowledge it. So it's kind of like... Remember we used to down. like sit on that old couch when we recorded? You remember <laughs> the that? The iron couch. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> we still right. do have that couch, just we not do. in our office. Uh, yeah. Exactly. But. <laughs> so there are three ways to get our bonus episodes. You can sign up at patreon.com slash history of Westeros. You can, if you have a Spotify account, you can sign up to be a subscriber through there. It just adds on to your existing Spotify bill. So it keeps it pretty simple. That's Anchor Spotify. And you can also get them by going to our website, historyofwestros.com, sending a one-time donation, and we will respond to you with links to all of our bonus episodes. And that is how we do that. A couple of questions here. Hi, Lord Jacob Hayes, the Doom Opal, captain, captain of the Shimmering Tide, relentless as the seas, and hand of the king, has their name day tomorrow. So happy name day, first off. Hope you have a great name day. Hi, Lord Jacob Hayes. Happy name day. Yeah. They want to know if we have any thoughts on the Long Claw conspiracy, which is mostly that the conspiracy is that, it's, that it is Blackfire and that it's, it would be a sneaky way to get that into John's hands. I, I used to have a small fondness for this theory, but I, mm, I don't think so. I don't think so. I think it's too convoluted. How would... Blackfire be with the Mormons. It doesn't really make any sense for Blackfire to be with the Mormons. It would also can't, it can't explain how it could have existed before, 500 years before. Like, how was it? It just doesn't add up. Like, Blackfire would have been in, in Valyria during that time. It just, yeah, it just doesn't work for me. I don't see how it's possible. I, I also believe that, I mean, it would be cool. The reason, one of the reasons the theory has legs is because John is going to be like the Blackfire role to Danny a bastard of House Targaryen who, who could be put above her in the line of succession, although he's not necessarily a bastard. It, it would be a cadet branch or a different branch from her family, which is the kind of the role Damon Blackfire had. But for a number of reasons, I just don't see it because Jon isn't likely to try for the throne. I think he'll be king in the north, but he's not really going to want to be king on the Iron Throne, I don't think. I don't think he's going to go to war with Danny, And I don't think he aspires to that. And I don't think he will get it either. So I don't know. Yeah, it's too, it's does, it's too many moving parts, too many, too many things that, that are remote, too many small chances, things like that. Yeah. I wasn't even aware of this, but it, as you're bringing it up and talking about it, I can, I can imagine ways for it to be true, but it's hard for me to think of how Martin could convey all that in the story. Yeah. How could he it's not explain set up how all this happened? Yeah. yeah so. Blackfire, I mean, the sword Blackfire literally hasn't been mentioned in the five main novels. It's only in Although Duncan this, Egg and the World of Ice and Fire. I mean, it's, it's in those a lot, but... <laughs> but Although this is worth a good time to mention also that there's another reason why it seems likely that it's not Blackfire, which is that in A Dance with Dragons, in that manuscript, in the original version, that 
that Illyrio, it, it seems that Illyrio has black fire for yes, young Griff. Too, yeah. And that, that, of course, was not in the finished draft, but it does seem like that is still the case that it's in Essos with. And, and black fire is notably darker than most Valyrian steel because it was put into Aegon the Conqueror's uh, grave when they were burying him or when they were having his funeral, which was lit by Vagar. So dragon fire didn't like damage it, but it scorched it. And so it's, it's even darker than, than normal. Anyway, moving on from and that's that. that's not part of the description of Longclaw at all. Yeah, exactly. Longclaw doesn't have that like extra dark description. It's just, it's described like normal Valyrian steel, basically. <laughs> Pulled Porg Sandwich says, you know, squids often have claws, especially giant and colossal squids. So the sword could still have been Longclaw, just a different kind of claw. Yeah, it's true. Uh, I guess they have the 10, the, isn't it the two, the difference between, one of the main differences between a squid and octopus is octopus has eight arms and a squid has 10 and the two extras are the ones that have the claws, I think. I, don't, I think the other eight don't, but maybe, maybe some of them do. Uh, that's, that's my basic understanding. I, sometimes you see the art reflected that way. Like the Greyjoy Kraken has the two extra tentacles have the claws on them, but just those two. So I think that's normal. Mm. So anyway, but I'm no squidologist. Mm. <laughs> You'll have to ask some Greyjoy scientists. They know all there is to know about squids and Kraken. Tony Sled sends a super chat and says, Personally, I feel Jorah is now Tyrion's new personal killer. Jorah may regain honor helping Tyrion with the needs of the old bear defeating others. Yeah, yeah, that, I, I could see that is, I think, I think Jorah's due for a partial redemption arc. There's nothing's gonna, he can't erase what he did, clearly. It's, it's like, I have a Stannis-like attitude towards that. Nothing will ever make that go away. But he can do good deeds the rest of the way out, and that would be worthy of praise. It's like, yep, good deeds don't erase the bad, but if your recent, pattern is all good deeds, then that, that's a good thing, right? And if Jorah is a frontline fighter against the undead, yeah, I mean, that's, you gotta give him credit for that, even despite all his prior misdeeds. You know, gray, very gray. Uh, right now, he's, you know, he hasn't done any of that yet. So he may never do that, so we're not gonna praise him before that. But it does seem not unlikely that he'll end up fighting some others and whites, and that'll help a lot in restoring some of his reputation. Anything to add to that, Sean or Shea? Predictions yeah. for, for any of that outlook? I mean, from yeah, I just said, I, I guess I, I lean towards Jorah being more closely tied to Danny long term than Tyrion. I think Jorah is with, you know, is, is going to fight for Tyrion, but I, I think that when it comes down to it, it'll be Jorah defending Danny. Yeah, I guess that's true. I mean, Tyrion will be with. Yeah, Tyrion's around, not, not but I, I, I just, I guess, yeah. I don't agree that Jorah is will continue to be Tyrion's personal killer, mm. whether he is or not. Now, I don't think he will be in the long term. Interesting. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That's, that seems. I can see that. Like if they're, if there's if they're in a battle together, I don't think Jorah is like defending Tyrion. I think he's surrounded Danny, and I don't know. Well, the, the okay, I could sort of see that. The one reason maybe why he would be with Tyrion is that. Danny would be on her dragon no, and no one's going to be with her if she's up in the yeah. air. If, he, if he's like the hand of the queen, then he would maybe get extra guards. I don't know. It doesn't have to be Jorah, though. <laughs> yeah. could, be, could be anybody else. Could be. I have a little bit more of, I don't know, generic philosophy-based take. The, the idea of if someone's 20 years old and they commit some crime, but even murder, and they go to jail for life, 20 years later, when they're 40 years old, after being in jail for 20 years, or if somehow they get away with it and they don't go to jail, still 20 years later, you're just a different person. You know what I mean? Like 
I think part of what a trial does or a court or society does or should do is figure out, is this person different? Have they found redemption? But we have parole boards. We release people. We, That's true. Yeah. We want them to rehabilitate, you know? And so I think that whatever crime drawer committed in the past, even if it's not forgivable, if you will, the person he is now is not the same person he... Well, yeah. if the person he is now is not the same person he was then, which I don't think it is, then I think he's worthy of redemption, if you will. Sure. And, and, and just from a more pragmatic approach, if Westeros is about to be invaded by others and whites, you need all the warriors you can get. I'd put it from that, like from that perspective. Yeah. Like if he's willing to, to fight with alongside everybody else, you don't want to spit on that. You need every sword you can get. One other question here. Mick Mac. Nice name. <laughs> Wonderful movie posters, too. Without any spoilers, Sean, what did you think of the last episode of Better Call Saul? <laughs> Mm. I loved it. And not to toot my own horn, but I, man, I've been obsessing over the show in general this past season, especially. And the again, not to spoil too much, but they've been sort of presenting this puzzle. In fact, I wanted to say this earlier when you talked about like the puzzle that, the, you know, that Martin's presenting that we don't always have the full picture. We get this little piece of Jorah or something in the world, but through the course of it, we get more and more pieces and eventually we see there's a bigger picture. Even before we get all the pieces in the right place, you can start off with a little piece of a puzzle and not know what it is and eventually realize this is a car or a mountain. And then eventually you get all the pieces put together. I think Better Call Saul is doing that. They're, they're giving us these little pieces. And I had put the puzzle together. I almost perfectly predicted everything in That's that awesome. past episode. It's very satisfying um, when a show does that for you, when it gives you the pieces and then it doesn't like try to trick you after showing you. If you figure the puzzle out, you get the answers. If you're not, if you're not paying attention to the puzzle, then you get to be surprised. It gives you multiple ways to, to, to take it in. And that's great. I like that. Multiple ways to enjoy something. Well played, better call Saul. Mm. Let's talk about the people and culture of Bear Island. Here's another quote from A Storm of Swords, Catelyn 5. We have needed to be. In olden days, the Iron Men would come raiding in their longboats or wildlings from the frozen shore. The men would be off fishing, like as not. The wives they left behind had to defend themselves and their children or else be carried off. Yeah, it's not just like a normal raid where they come to take your stuff. They come to take people. And this is this is goes to show the level of extremes that exist in the far north where resources are so scarce that even people are worth stealing because you need people. Like your your populations are on the brink because of there's just not enough of you. Uh, basic things like that. It's really hard to fathom. If you have the ability to sit home and listen to a podcast, you've probably not experienced <laughs> this kind of level of depredation. No, no insult to whatever you've been through, but this is, this is hard to fathom. So both of their main enemies, again, do this, as we described. We've got the Ironborn and the Wildlings doing that. Not just that, though, given the island was ruled by the Ironborn for large stretches of time, there's probably some Ironborn bloodlines in a lot of the people living on Bear Island. Just like England... If you th talk about England and look at the genetics of England and Ireland, there's just Scandinavian blood everywhere because there was Viking Denmark conquest of England. They ruled for quite a while. I there's, guess there's even more going the other way, probably. Yeah. More, more Bear Island blood on the Iron Islands from women taken than there is babies. Right, you know, vice versa. Yeah, that's a good point. That is a good point. So they're, in, in a sense, this is kind of like they're all one people, in a sense. Uh, they're all for originally first men as well. They're not like, which of course, that was, that's a more diverse group than, than the name suggests, as we pointed out a few times. But still, it just goes to show over time, you know, these, these, the differences between these people are, are more cultural than a lot of other things. Here is a, another quote that implies just this. 
large tracts of the Stony Shore, Bear Island, Sea Dragon Point, and Cape Kraken have all been held by Ironmen at times. Indeed, Cape Kraken, closest to the Iron Islands, has changed hands so many times that many maesters believe it's populous to be closer in blood to the Ironmen than to Northmen. Yeah, so if it says that about Cape Kraken, if it's changed so many hands so many times that the population is closer in blood to the Ironmen than the Northmen, that should be true to a lesser extent in these other locales that were named, Sea Dragon Point, Bear Island, and the Stony Shore. So yeah, and yeah, so just strong lands building strong peoples, right? You got harsh realms building harsh peoples, all these different things that, that shape them into what they are today. Here's another quote. This one's about Daisy, one of Rob's guards. One of his companions was even a woman, Daisy Mormont, Lady Mage's eldest daughter, an heir to Bear Island, a lanky six-footer, who had been given a morning star at an age when most girls were given dolls. Right, so again, this just shows the difference. Bear Island is different when most girls would be given dolls. Well, this is from Catelyn's position, Catelyn's perspective. She was a Tully of River Run, you know, very noble upbringings. No one put a morning star in her hand. She hadn't, I mean, look at how she reacted to Brienne. Same thing. She's like, oh, look at that, a woman. Wow, you know, <laughs> haven't seen anything like this. She's Lynesse, but without the you know, the look without looking down on it, right? Liness looked down on that. Catelyn was just like, surprised. Oh, I haven't seen that before, you know? And it goes to show you got things like the unique environment. You've got the unique culture around women warriors. You've got sailing culture, which is a little different than a lot of the Norse. There's a lot of little small to not so small differences here. Nina says, I bet there is a plenty of intermarriage between the Mormons and the people of the Northern Mountain clans. Life among the mountain clans is harsh. And as a result, the clansmen are tough and hardy. People who do not keep the traditional aristocratic trappings, a life quite similar to that on Bear Island. Yeah, they're really tough. They hate the free folk, just like the, the wildling clans of the, of the hills. So they have a lot in common with the Mormons, especially that toughness. And they're also close by. The islands, obviously it's not directly next to the mountains, but there's a lot of mountains and hills near the western coast, which is where the clans have their main existence. In fact, some of the clans are specifically said to fish the Bay of Ice, which is where Marm, uh, Bear Island is. In fact, Bear Island is hilly. There might be some clans on the islands itself. They may be just living on the, you know, some of the very few, you know, it says only crofters live in the interior. So that might mean there aren't some clans up there, but eh, there might be a few up there. You may just not have mentioned them. But either way, that is perhaps who they have the most in common with, which is pretty neat. Like guys like Big Bucket Wall and Middle Little <laughs> have a little more similar to the Mormons, perhaps, than someone like Wyman Manderley <laughs> or even Roose Bolton or whatever. So yeah, if you look around, that's what you'll see. Well, let's talk about some characters, outlook for those characters, and overall themes of House Mormont, starting with this. Very iconic line. Stannis read from the letter, Bear Island knows no king but the king in the north, whose name is Stark. Girl of ten, you say, and she presumes to scold her lawful king. <laughs> so that's Liana, Liana Mormont. The version of her on TV was very popular, of course, for good reason. She was fantastic. But even though Liana says this, they're still kind of allies in a sense, even though they, they don't immediately bend the knee to Stannis, they still fight the common enemy and appreciate that Stannis is doing that like John said to do. Like we said at the beginning, be the king, don't say you're the king. Quote. Stannis had taken Deepwood Mott and the mountain clans had joined him. Flint, Nori, Wool, Little, 
all. And we had other help, unexpected but most welcome, from a daughter of Bear Island, Alisane Mormont, whose men, name her the She-Bear, hid fighters inside a gaggle of fishing sloops and took the Iron Men unawares where they lay off the strand. Greyjoy's longships are burned or taken, her crews slain or surrendered. The captains, knights, notable warriors, and others of high birth we shall ransom or make other use of. The rest, I mean to hang. Hmm. So it's not that they hated Stannis, they just aren't going to bend the knee to some guy that says, follow me. They would if he were a Stark, to be sure. Or if the Stark said, yes, do what Stannis says. If he, the Stark bent the knee to Stannis, then they would in turn follow him too. But they do hate the Ironborn. And when, they, when the chance came to fight the Ironborn, like, yeah, well, if he's going to do that, then we're all about it. And it's another, it's exactly what Stannis learned from Davos. Be what they want. Do the lead. Don't demand your rights. Prove you deserve them. Don't, it's nice to have the best claim on order of birth, but it's better to have a claim on being the better person. Yeah, I'm the better man. My my claim is less important. You know, it's it's a better thing to be, you know, people like this, like the, the clans, like the wildlings follow strength, right? And the Mormons are, yeah, they're sort of like that. They're not the clans. They're not the wildlings, but they got that same sort of strength-first attitude because they have to have that. It's their existence. Without that strength, they get wiped out. They get eaten by cannibals and enslaved by Ironborn. Yeah. It's a it's a theme that we see in a lot of ways. And, you know, I guess not just in the North or in these Northern storylines, but just in general in the show, these questions of blurred loyalties, you know, there's reasons to follow you from a established precedent, but there's also reason to follow you from a common goal. And it seems like the Mormonts are maybe representative of a bigger picture, maybe an indication of things to come, maybe the, the leaders of how it should go, etc. Yeah, they're, they're more about their values than they are about the laws, right? The laws are based on their values, but they're, if when those things conflict, it's the values that matter more than the laws. The laws are just decisions that people who came before made, you know, and if those laws no longer suit those values, then it's the laws that fall first, not the values. They, they, they're, yeah. yeah, their values are too important, too, too close to the heart. So Alisand pulls off this pretty badass move, really. You know, and it's, it's not unlikely something Bear Islanders know about Ironborn, right? They've been dealing with them forever. And they know that when they're on, in their inland somewhere, their ships are back there somewhere. You know, if they're raiding inland, they had to leave their ships at shore and they're modestly defended at best. So the Mormons sort of have this playbook. I bet this isn't the first time they've figured out something like this. And yeah, that's the value of, of having fought the Ironborn for over the preceding eons. There's a little, a little playbook, probably, on <laughs> how to deal with that. <laughs> now, continuing on that same vein, here's a brief exchange between Asha and Alisan from A Dance of Dragons, The King's Prize. Asha smiled back. Mormont women are all fighters, too. The other woman's smile faded. What we are is what you made us. On Bear Island, every child learns to fear krakens rising from the sea. And they are a bit ironborn themselves, as we suggested. There's that. It's interesting that these two are having this conversation, and we earlier mentioned the possible blood they may have, they may share. Neither of them probably like to talk about that very much, though. <laughs> so the idea that women are fighting while the men are out hunting and fishing, these are obviously not hard and fast rules, not even on Bear Island. Obviously, if, if women are fighting in a culture that 
worldwide, mostly the men fight, then yeah, surely there's probably some men that defend and probably some women that go out and fish and hunt. But the point is, everyone's in danger <laughs> at all times. A raid could happen at any time. It's, there's no safe job. Whether, you know, even the cook is in danger. Even the people gathering firewood, because at any point, ironborn or cannibals can just show up, try to take you away or kill you or take your stuff or both. So there's no safe job. I think it goes to the point I was making earlier about how the women of House Mormont or Bear Island would like to be able to put that axe down. Asha's, hey, I'm a fighter. You're a fighter too. To her, it's like this fun, adventurous thing. And she's like, no, we don't want this. You make us do this. It's not really our choice. It's what we have to resort to. Don't try to bond with me over your aggression, you know? Yeah. Nina writes it. It's not Westerosi patriarchy just stops completely at Bear Island's doors. Don't mistake this for something else. It's, it's necessity, not regard, necessarily. The woman Daisy loves on the carving on their gate has a child in one arm, one arm and, and the axe in the other. And this is, this is, yes, it's an aspiration, but it's also an expectation. The expectation is that you will breed, raise the next generation, but also you have to fight. Yeah. <laughs> and it's, it is a necessity. The men are out getting food. and They might get attacked while they're fishing, but the attack might come on the shore, they don't know where it's going to come. That's the problem of being on defense is the attacker gets to choose where they're attacking and you have to defend all of it or at least enough of it where to defend the parts where people live anyway. Yeah, there's just no job on Bear Island is safe <laughs> because at any point you could be attacked by their traditional enemies. Some of this, Nina says, these are some of the saddest lines in Dance with Dragons because they come just as Alisand and Asha were almost bonding. They're almost becoming friends and then this this history between their peoples comes up and like she was joking before that's why it says her smile faded she's like ah. like she's joking about her her husband being a bear <laughs> you know things like that and then it's you guys are fighters yeah because of you <laughs> and it's like oh my bad <laughs> i didn't mean to bring that <laughs> sore spot up but that gulf divides if it weren't for their history or if they were ignorant of their history they might become friends they were bonding they're similar age they're really close in age they're both in their mid-20s we don't have the exact age on either of them but they're close. And Anita's right. That it is the direction that conversation was headed until the reality of their people's like, no, wow, how could we ever be friends? Like, our people hate each other. We're at war. We're literally at war. I mean, <laughs> right now. So, <laughs> yeah, it's just not going to happen. It is a, a minor tragedy among many, a microcosm of relationships that just can't happen because of the people that came before them. Yeah, it is sad. It is sad. There is a vague mention of Gior's father. We we're talking about other characters that, that pop up. He's the one that told Gior that no man can lie before a heart tree, that he's the one who taught him that. And that, John says, my father taught me the same thing. And you wonder if that is maybe relevant for Jorah, like confessing his crime or owning up to it, or if he's faced with the heart tree and someone asks him something, is he going to be able to lie or is he going to have to tell the truth because he's in front of a heart tree? <laughs> you know, something like that. I really wonder. Like, we haven't seen Jorah be in Westeros at all. He's only ever been in Essen. You know, I wonder what that exact quote was. We've talked about this a few times. Can Danny lie in front of a heart tree? Can Asha? Oh, yeah. Can non Yeah, mm. yeah. Good point. Good point. I, I, I would think that they don't... I, I would think they think they can lie in front of a heart tree, but what would a northerner <laughs> say? Like, I wouldn't try that theory out if I were you. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so earlier we mentioned that there would be at least one more Mormont woman with an axe. Unfortunately, we don't have her name, but we do have her anecdote, and it comes from fire and blood. There it is. When the queen expressed regret that she had never had the pleasure of meeting Lady Stark, the Northman said, 
She was a Mormont to Bear Isle, and no lady by your lights, but she took an axe to a pack of wolves when she was 12, killed two of them, and sewed a cloak from their skins. She gave me two strong sons as well, and a daughter as sweet to look upon as any of your Southern ladies. So talk about, she lived up to the uh, that carved woman on the door there, didn't she? With literally, like pretty literally, got the axe and the children and everything, right? <laughs> Killing wolves. But yeah, and, and compare that to the iconic Liana line, right? I know no king, but but Stark, you know? And this is, a, this is a Stark here. He's not a king, but he's Lord Stark. This is Alaric, who, as we've said many times, has major Stannis vibes. And Alysan Targaryen has major Sansa vibes. This Alysan, who's very well-regarded and famous trip to the North, pretty good chance this is who Alysan Mormont's named after. Even though... You think so? Even though, like, I, I don't know about that. Well, it's not for sure. The name is spelled differently. There's one N versus yeah, I, I two. Kinda, but... I, I tend to think they're, set, they're pronounced differently, too. I mean, I say, I don't say it Alysan. I say Alysan. So, hmm. I don't know. I, like, I, be, I, yeah. For example, we have like Black Alley, Blackwood, you know, like I, I, I feel like there could be other alleys that you know, she was named, referenced to or I don't know. I think Black Alley was probably named for Queen Alice. Yeah, yeah. And I, thought that, I, don't, <laughs> I don't disagree with that. I think okay. she was named for Alice and that maybe then Alice Mormont was named for like Black Alley, Blackwood or something like that. It's possible, yeah. Um, which so would be indirectly named, named Indirectly for named yeah. after her, yeah. but I don't know. I, I, the, the name being like different points to it not to me. It is interesting because, yeah, you're right. Like, this, she's the only Alisan with one N. I, yeah. I mean, when you search for Alisan with two Ns, there's a ton. If you search for the, with one N, she's the only one. So, I don't know. The no, no lady by your lights line reminds us of, of Liness, you know? <laughs> and uh, Alaric outlived both of, his, both of his sons, but his grandson, which was another Al- Alaric, was, so his grandson inherited Winterfell. And Alara, which is the daughter here, became friends with Alisan. So that's cool. Or Alara is, yeah, Alara was, uh, yeah. Anyway, so yeah, too bad we don't know this one's name. Like uh, Princess of Dorne, we're not quite as famous as her, but still. Yeah. <laughs> It'd be nice to have this Mormont lady's name, but alas. Yeah, we just need George to do, uh, you know, a Stark Fire and Blood book. <laughs> yeah. Book two, we could have. Oh, a that'd be awesome! Yeah, yeah. And a lot of people have like long wanted him to do a Stark history because he's done so much Targaryen history, but the Starks are such a, a mystery to us still. Stark would be, and people would eat that up almost as much, if not more, than the Targaryen stuff for sure. Another really neat detail here, in reference to Alaric, in reference to all the character parallels that are going on here, bring back the Lyanna letter to Stannis, like she, her him being talking about that. This is as if. Alaric marrying this Mormont girl is kind of like as if Stannis, like that, if that pairing had happened, it's like this woman who talked to me like that, I ended up marrying her because I was impressed by her courage. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's an alternate reality Stannis uh, (laughs) marriage. So we have, let's talk a little bit about this pattern that's emerging here that we've talked about a little bit. Let's focus in on this and how it works here. There's, there were really, their house that stands for defense against the worst, ironborn cannibals, and the wall, right? Gior is on the wall, right? <laughs> fighting against the others, leading them, training a successor. Meanwhile, his son, though shamed with a hidden agenda on multiple occasions, Joris still is a protector. Despite all his baggage, he definitely defended Danny on multiple occasions with his sword, almost died, you know, a couple times. So he gets credit for that. And Mormont's fighting for Rob. Daisy died for him at the Red Wedding. So there's that, right? They're stubborn towards Stannis, but Alysanne does join him after Deepwood Mott, after seeing him 
lead properly like a northern king should. And you know, this is after she does that move on Asha's ships. So it's a pattern well set up by the place they live in and the dangers they've been tempered by. This house is very well explained by their environment. It's very, it works really well for me. It's created an unusually high number of warrior women too. So that makes them really interesting as well as a house because, well, we don't see a lot of that. There's not a lot of warrior women in the story, but, you know, and in, and in the case of Brienne, Brienne is uncomfortable because of the way she's been treated. She's a really good fighter, but she wasn't raised, even though she's raised on an island, she was constantly told not to be this person. Where on Bear Island, they're like, yeah, warrior women. Yeah, that's how we, it's normal for them. They don't, it doesn't seem weird to them at all. They, and Catelyn notices that. I may even have the quote later in the episode here, but <laughs> referencing it now to set it up, Catelyn notices that Brienne just always seems uncomfortable in her own skin. Like she's, she's not quite settled because of not being accepted. Whereas the Mormont women, she notices they don't seem uncomfortable at all. They seem like completely adjusted. No one's telling them not to do what they're doing. They have the support of their people and their culture and all that. But yeah, it's a really interesting contrast. The acceptance of these women, also in their toughness, they don't really seem to care when people look at them sideways. But that's partly because there's a group of them. They have this background. Like her own, their own people support them in this, whereas Brienne's own people are among the people telling her that she's doing it wrong. She doesn't really have that support from anyone. Sometimes the most logical or most comfortable path still isn't a comfortable path, just yeah. more so than others, right? So uh, Brienne on Bear Island would be more at home. Where she is now, she could, should be a lady and wear gowns, but she wouldn't be comfortable in that skin either, True. right? So yeah. th this might not be comfortable, but it's still better than other options. And we, that's a great point, Sean. In fact, we do see that. Remember, Jamie at, at Roos Bolton makes her wear a dress and she looks like completely out of place. She's like uncomfortable and like, this is I'm not used to this and it doesn't fit me very well because of her big shoulders and all that. Yeah, it's just all these different symbolic and, and straightforward reasons why it, it doesn't fit. And so one of the reasons this is particularly interesting is, as far as possibly moving forward in the story, that conversation between Asha and Alisande is possible groundwork for other future relationships in the North. Maybe if we want to be really optimistic, the story will end on a positive note with Ironborn and Northern relations. Maybe that's setting that up. Maybe this bit with Alaric Stark and Alisande Targaryen as much as I like to view it as a possibility of Stannis and Sansa, it could come up as far as a relationship there, but it could also be relevant for Arya, but even more so for Danny. In other words, like women leaders with a house that has powerful, prominent women in it, like that might be relevant for people who stand with Danny versus people who don't, that there might be a little more likely to support her because of. You know, they're more likely to say, what's wrong with having a woman leader? You know, look at us. We're, we're doing it. You know, what's wrong with that? Mage Mormont proves herself repeatedly in, in during Rob's war as a good leader and, and as a politician, as we'll be getting to shortly. So I do think that could come up quite a lot. Heck, House Karstark is led by a woman right now, too. There's a lot of houses currently led by women, in part because war is raging. And as we see... When war rages, a lot of the men get killed. And sometimes all the men who could be in charge are dead of a particular, in a particular house. That leads to women taking over. There's a lot of that during the Dance of the Dragons, for example. The winter of the widows is a specific term that gets coined. Black Alley Blackwood is, is one of them, for example. She's not a widow, but she's part of that, that you know, 
time period, that short time period after the dance. Um, was she ever a widow? Did she outlive Cregan or did he outlive her? He outlived her. Yeah, she yeah. married. He married again after yeah, her. They had daughters right. only, yeah, and then yeah, he married right. a cousin. I think he married his cousin yeah. after that. The song Bear and the Maiden Fair also sounds like Jorah's relationship with Danny, right? A bear, a bear, all black and brown and covered with hair. Jorah's very hairy. His bear is his sigil. The black bear is on his sigil, but he's brown-haired. And of course, her hair is like the color of honey, which hers is a little more silver gold. But yeah. Anyway, we've talked about that before, but it's, it's meant to be symbolic, thematic, whatever. Pay attention to that. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's obviously also meant to make us think of uh, Beauty and the Beast. True. Something George has a very yeah. deep connection to. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> he loves that sort of uh, dynamic. Sure does. Sure does. So Jorah was second through the walls at Pike after Greyjoy's rebellion failed and Robert uh, smashed him. The first one, of course, was Thoros of Mir. And the Ironborn being a longtime enemy and all and rare for the Bear Islanders to get to take the fight to them, this might have been why he was like so ready <laughs> so much at the front. He's like, oh, my people have wanted this for a while. But he's also just like a big guy, a good warrior, a gr- more than good. And remember what Braun said about following big men into battle. Well, he said, do it. That's what you should, yeah, you just do that. Mm-hmm. You should do that. Gregor Clegane was the example in that case, which you don't get much bigger than that, but Jorah's pretty damn big. So this is maybe a little similar to House Umber in some ways. You get these just large men constantly being created by this because the, the environment isn't kind to not strong people, men or women. But given that, and then he wins this tournament at Landisport, gets knighted by Robert. Like, he might have been the most famous Mormont ever, which just adds to the whole shame angle when that all comes crashing down, right? Uh, just really, just the, nothing like if, getting higher before you fall to make the crash more spectacular. If he hadn't done these things, it might not have been noticed by most people that he sold those That's slaves. true. But because he had this fame surrounding him, everyone finds so, out. Oh, that guy did it. Yeah, it's like, oh, him. Oh, yeah. Oh, that's bad. Yeah. And like you might have some northerners being like, yep, see, he he got knighted and it ruined him. It turned him into a slaver. Nope. <laughs> <laughs> That's what that Southern culture will do to you. <laughs> I wonder if Mormont was the first, or was Jorah was the first ever Mormont to get knighted. I, I wouldn't be surprised if he wasn't because there's been plenty of centuries that have passed and it's not that unusual for northerners to get knighted, but it isn't common either. And it feels like the closer to the Southern portion of the North you get to, the more knights there are. And of course, Bear Island is, pretty far to the north. So, hmm. anyway. Why Jorah looked so appealing at the time to both Leighton Hightower and Liness Hightower, who you know, was, was happy to be chosen by him. And Liness was the 10th child of a very large family. He got older ser- sisters married to House Redwine and other places. But Jorah's a lord. I mean, he wasn't just a knight. He was not just this famous, highly decorated, badass warrior, but he's a lord. So there's that. He has the rank. But if this at all, if he had asked for her hand at some other time, it wouldn't happen. He, even he didn't expect it to happen. He was like, I'm just, I'm asking, but I'm, they're probably going to say no. And he was like, whoa, he was really surprised when, when they were like, yes, I will give you the hand of my daughter. He was like, really? <laughs> and he, in retrospect, it would have been better for him had they said no. <laughs> better for her, probably too. Better for everyone, probably. Because of all his recent fame, he was, he was peaking. Like, he, he peaked, yeah, he peaked. And then it was all downhill from there. And he, he beat some really big names, too. Let's not forget, it wasn't just he won the tournament, but he beat, like, Jason Malister and Jan Royce, I think. Yeah, just a big name, a huge name. Jamie Lannister? He did beat Jamie, but he didn't 
it was by decision. He didn't knock Jamie off his horse. They broke nine lances. I could see Nina actually wrote it down here. Robert was like, all right, Jorah wins, which that might have been. <laughs> he might have picked yeah, Jorah yeah. just because. Bias in Robert's part. But clearly <laughs> it was close. Clearly a close call. Yes. So yeah. it can't be that bad of a decision. It can't be that egregious. So anyway, so maybe, yeah, so Jorah might have it look good. He might have had, you know, the High Towers have a northern ally. Like that might be relevant to them. They might have maybe Leighton High Towers like, man, we need some timber. Let's get a good timber deal going here. You know, <laughs> something like that. He may have had an angle. He might have wanted to build some more ships himself. You never know what kind of what he was thinking. We haven't even met this character yet. So who knows what Leighton kind of guy Leighton is. But he is still alive and still up there, top of the tower. Yeah. So I, as I've said, Jorah, I think. Some kind of redemption is not unlikely, but again, not a full redemption. What Tyrion says to him, I think, is pretty accurate. Like, you're not thinking this through very smartly here, man. Like, bringing me to her, she might just be like, thanks for the gift, but that doesn't make up for what you did. Cut your head off, you know? And, and Tyrion says that, Jorah gets angry because he's right. <laughs> he's like, he realizes Tyrion's right. He's like, I don't like what you're saying. Can't deny that you're right. <laughs> and, and then so Jorah's like, well, what if I also bring the second sons over? Tyrion's like, well, that's a little better, but it still doesn't erase what you did. <laughs> and he's not even sure what, what Jorah did. He just knows he had to have done something to get sent away, to get exiled. You know, he had something bad. So that's why I call it a kind of redemption and not a, you know, not a full redemption. It's also the type of thing that in a broader sense, maybe he's redeemed, right? Like my example before, say you murder someone, you go to jail for 20 years, the, the, the powers that be, the, the courts, the parole board, they might decide, okay, you're a changed person, you served your time, you can start your new life. But the family, the person who was murdered might be like, no, you murder my dad. They still might have this personal opinions on it that aren't overcome by what the courts or society or whatever decides. Yeah. So, you know, on some level, Dora might feel like what he's done is a redemption, is is evening it out. But will Danny personally feel that way, having been the one that was betrayed? That's a probably not. Question. Like it, from our perspective, Tyrion's especially, it doesn't seem like Jorah believes, still doesn't, hasn't accepted that he did something all that wrong. It, it doesn't seem like he's taken that to heart. Maybe, maybe he will. If not, then he's definitely not going to get back in her good graces <laughs> if he still doesn't because accept responsibility. If in the first place, on some level, he thinks he was serving the king, right? Mm. He didn't know Danny. He'd say, this is like a, a betrayer. I, you know, maybe I was a betrayer, but there's this other betrayer out there, right? Yeah. If that's how in his mind, the, the last Targaryen has been pitched, you know? But then when he has more time to reflect on what he did, when he gets to know who Danny really is, and maybe when he thinks about what Robert was trying to kill this little girl, this little girl is trying to free slaves. Like he, in his mind, he's evolved, but it still doesn't take away from how Danny will feel about the original betrayer. Yeah, he just can't seem to accept his own his own role in this. He just remember at the time, Danny was willing to forgive him if he if he basically did what Barristan did. Barristan was like, "Yeah, I lied to you. I shouldn't have done that. My bad. Please forgive me." Jorah's like, "I had to do it. I didn't do it." You know, he's just ah, if you had just admitted wrongdoing, she was ready to forgive you. But no, that and that made her so mad that he wouldn't do it. And you kind of like as a reader, you're like. You're like, I'm, I'm mad too. Dude, just admit you did it. <laughs> just admit you shouldn't have done it. Yeah, oh man. Yeah, he just can't accept it. So that's, that's a big problem for him. But this is leading us forward to something else. This presents us with a possible conundrum. Consider what I just said about maybe the Mormont women being pro-Sansa or pro-Danny because of you know, women leaders and them being like, well, why can't women be leaders? 
consider that idea with Danny specifically. Because with Sansa, I think it's easier to accept. Yeah, she's a Stark. She's a woman. Why wouldn't we follow her lead? It's different with Danny. She's not a Northerner. And if she has Jorah with her, they're going to be like, you have him? Well, what do you... That's our... The most outcast, shamed member of our house of all time. Quite possibly. Like, they, the guy that we didn't even want his sword. <laughs> how are they going to react? It's like how I wonder about the Bravosi. Are the Bravosi going to be anti-Danny because they hate dragons or pro-Danny because she hates slavery? Because those are their values, right? I tend to think that the, the slavery thing matters more, but the rich people of Bravos care about that less. I don't know. I really just have no idea which way it will go. And this is another one of those like, well, which are they going to weigh? <laughs> you know, it is more of George like presenting the the torn loyalties concept, like other entities in a world are going to have to deal with this. And like often we as readers have to do it and often central characters have to do it. But we can see how more and more of it is coming. Yeah, are they going to be like, because a a real fear they would have is, is she just going to pardon him and make us take him back as Lord? They'd be like, Mm -hmm. yeah, no, don't do that. By the way, that, (laughs) that, that dilemma is resolved if he gets killed in battle. True. <laughs> it could cause some conflict before, like before that's resolved. But I do, th- yeah, I do think he's going to die before it becomes an issue in the long run. But it could be an issue in the short run where they're like, she's planning to give that back to him. We can't, you know, that's bad, blah, blah, blah. And, you know, you mentioned a Bravosi. It, it could be split. There could be a, yeah. a, a portion, a faction within a Bravosi that like, don't want to have anything to do with but another that want to fight the slavery. And she might only need a portion of their support. You know, X amount of money will pay for X amount of soldiers. Even if she could have had X plus Y, she's still X is more than zero. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Here is another quote. This is um, what I referred to earlier about how they feel. And this is from Catelyn's point of view. Quote. The daughter was tall and lean, the mother short and stout, but they dressed alike in mail and leather with the black bear of House Mormont on shield and surcoat. By Catelyn's lights, that was queer garb for a lady. Yet Daisy and Lady Mage seemed more comfortable, both as warriors and as women, than ever the girl from Tarth had been. Yeah, so it's not just the warrior part. I didn't mention that they just are more comfortable as women. Uh, just period. You know, they're, 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 they don't sweat it. Where Brienne is constantly told this, that, and the other, and is constantly made to question herself. Brienne's unusual for her culture, discouraged from the path she's taken, whereas the Mormons, no, everyone fights. It's just how it is. They don't question that. So let's talk about Mage, the she-bear lady of Bear Islands. Here's one of my favorite G.R. Mormont quotes. This is said to John. You're not the only one touched by this war. Like it's not, my sisters marching in your brother's host. Her and those daughters of her, dressed in men's mail. Mage is a hoary old snark, stubborn, short-tempered, and willful. <laughs> Truth be told, I can hardly stand to be around the wretched woman. But that does not mean my love for her is any less than the love you bear for your half-sisters. Frowning, Mormont took his last egg and squeezed it in his fist till the shell crunched. Or perhaps it does. Be that as it may, <laughs> I'd still grieve if she were slain. Yet, you don't see me running off. <laughs> so this is where I'll give Roy Dotrice a shout-out. I know that some voices he's not meant to do very well. This one he does really well. His G.R. Mormont is awesome. So I'll give him a shout for that. The Q, his, this is from his Our War is More Important speech. It's like, you really think your brother's war? He calls it his brother's war, right? <laughs> That's how he puts it down like that. Your brother's host and all that. It's like, no, it's the Our War against the, the, the other is clearly more important, right? John, John's like, yeah, I guess you're right, actually. <laughs> but he's right also that 
Mage is in Rob's army and that her daughters are with her. In fact, four of them, right? Daisy, Jorel, Liana, and Alisanne, who is the, the next oldest after Daisy. And then there's Liana, who stays at Bear Island. So she doesn't march in the army because she's only 10. But yeah, so Gior, Gior predicted that correctly. Nina notes there might be some, a uh, little bit of cozying up to the Starks here, like naming Jorel. Or to, or to their own lord, in this case. Lyanna is explicitly said to be named for Lyanna Stark. So that's a little bit of, you know, we're all, we're all family here. <laughs> we're all honoring the Starks. But in the case of Jor-El, it's kind of like, a, is that the female version of Jorah? Jor-El, Jorah. So maybe that's like, Mage originally was going to be subordinate to Jorah, or she was until Jorah left and had no kids of his own to, for the lordship to pass down to. So she became Lady of Bear Island. Probably just yeah, speaks to their that uh, they were close. They may have been close, yeah, and and or there's been lots of maybe that's just a family oh, yeah, name that yeah, lots of them have Gio, had. It is also reminiscent of Gior. True, it's like a similar root to the name, I guess. So maybe you just she's like trying to get in good with him. Like, yeah, I name my daughter after you, Jora. You know, and just make them all a family and things like that. I don't know. There's just possible ideas floating around there, and making sure that you know they're accepted as part of the family that they aren't, you know. No one decides that they need to be sent elsewhere, <laughs> married off elsewhere. So that's possible. And Mage, just looking at her actions, she is one of the first ones to show resistance to Rob's initial rule, which all the lords do because he's really young and they, they're trying to test him. Remember, Umber is the most grand with his testing of Rob and loses two fingers in the process for it. But Mage is like, you're young enough to be my grandson. You've got no business giving me commands, but I've got a granddaughter that you can marry. <laughs> so <laughs> her toughness is on display even when it comes to politics and negotiating and, and doing the same things a, a lord in this position would do. A man would do the same things in this spot. It's not, it's not a male-female thing. It's a lord thing. It's a lord lady. It's the head of the household kind of thing. I think Nina also mentions the idea by saying, you can marry my granddaughter, is reminding of the generational gap. Like, yeah. I, I have a lot more experience than you. You know what I mean? Like, on some <laughs> level, maybe you should listen to me. I have a granddaughter that you can marry, you know. <laughs> and that granddaughter, we know who that granddaughter is. We don't know the name of that granddaughter. But, the, but Alisanne has two kids a nine-year-old daughter and a two-year-old son. Those are the ones she doesn't give the names of. It's probably that nine-year-old daughter she's talking about because this is Mage. That would be her granddaughter. And Daisy didn't have any kids. And we don't know if Jorel or, uh, Jor-El or Liana can't have kids. She's only 10. Jorel and the other one, <laughs> whose name I've forgotten now in all this, Jorel. And anyway, they wouldn't have kids. Lyra? Lyra, yeah, Lyra. They, they might have kids, but it's not mentioned. And if they, even if they do, they probably don't have a daughter as old as Alisanne's nine-year-olds. That's probably who they're talking about. So that's kind of neat. But then when Rob proves himself, again, we get to this proof thing where Rob shows himself capable leader, pushes back against Umber, leads men into battle several times after they win the Battle of the Whispering Wood, which, by the way, when Jamie's army is in the trap, they, the signal is her warhorn. So she's played a crucial part there in terms of the, they relied on her for the timing of starting the attack. After the battle, what happens? Umber's like, king in the north time, y'all. Let's forget all this other... But they're arguing about who to follow and what to do. They find out Ned's been killed. They find out the Renly's rebelling and Stannis is... They're deciding who to follow. And Umber's like, none of them. Let's break free and be independent. Rickard Karstark's like, 
Good idea. I'm for that. Mage Mormont's the next one. She's the third one to say yes. And I, I can support that. She lays her Morningstar next down to their down next to their two swords, and they're off. And then Catelyn starts to feel really bad. <laughs> I almost talked them into peace. I don't know if you really almost did. You you may have thought you almost did, but either way, she's right to be sad because it's tragic. Moving on. When we get to just before the Red Wedding, Old Stones, when the will is happening, Mage and Galbart Glover are the two people ordered by Rob to go into the neck carrying false orders. In their brains, they know the right orders and they know who Rob's heir is. They witness the signing of the will. So Galbart and Mage traveled separately in case one of them is captured, the other will get through. So she's probably in the neck with Howland Reed, because as we mentioned in the Kranigman episode, they may not know to find how to find Howland, but the Kranigman will find them. And if they're flying the Stark banner like Rob said to do, they'll be seen as friends. And well, I don't know what happens after that, but that's probably where they still are. Maybe Galbard and Mage are both in there. And if Galbard and Mage are both there, consider that Galbard Glover may have been in contact with his brother Robit. Robit's the one working with Manderly who sent Davos to go to Skagos to get Rickon. So they may know about that and Rob's will. So they'd be like, oh, we got Rob's will naming John and we got Rickon's actually still alive, which they didn't know that, which if they, if they haven't been in contact with Robert Glover, then they don't even know Rickon's alive. But I suspect they do by now. So there's a lot of stuff happening in the neck where these two are hiding probably and Lyra and Jarrell went with Mage, which is, that was good because otherwise they would have been at the Red Wedding. Unfortunately for Daisy, she did go to the Red Wedding. She's one of Rob's bodyguards. And obviously that didn't go well for any of them. And when this comes up is Alisanne talking to Asha. They're just talking about where everybody is. Alisanne says, yeah, Lyra and Jorel are with my mother mage. But she doesn't say where. But we know that they're in the neck. She's not going to say that to Asha. But yeah, she knows that Liana is on Bear Island. And that is also confirmed by Stannis getting that letter from Bear Island. That's pretty cool. Lyra and Jorel, we don't know how old they are, but they're somewhere between 11 and 22. I tend to think on the older side of that because 11 is a bit young to be marching in, in, in war, even for, even for Mormons. It's also normal for really martial cultures like this. Like the Mongols do this. I think the Welsh do it as well, or did it as well, whereas the youngest stay home to defend the homestead, whereas the, and the young and the really old, whereas the, well, we've seen that for garrisons in, in the Song of Ice and Fire all over the place. So that's pretty cool. Lots to do with Mage. She's still out there. She's alive. She's making moves. She's capable. And still got some more moves to make, I would think. In a crucial spot, leading the people who are of the North, that want to restore the North, that are going to have a lot to do with the Starks and may have a lot to do with leading people against the others when that's all in place. Maybe she'll ride with Sansa. <laughs> Something like that. Can't wait. Alisanne. Also, Nicknamed the She-Bear. A bit confusing, isn't it? We got Mage the She-Bear and Alisanne the She-Bear. <laughs> yeah. Hmm. We've already mentioned that she's about the same age as Asha, between 22 and 27, roughly. Got that nine-year-old daughter, that two-year-old son, whose names aren't revealed. But now we want to talk about her husband, who she also doesn't reveal. Yeah, blah, blah, blah. Oh, you, you've got kids, then you must be married. That's when she grins and says the following line. No, my children were fathered by a bear. Mormont women are skin changers. We turn into bears and find mates in the woods. Everyone knows. <laughs> ah, sure. And that's the, the next line is Mormont women are, are fighters too. And she's, mm, 
because you made us. So that's that's where that's the, where that falls in this conversation. This is just before the Battle of Ice. It's really close to the end of A Dance of Dragons. Now, bef- just like Mage is sent away just before the Red Wedding, Alisan is sent away just before this Battle of Ice. She's sent with Justin Massey to take Arya, who is actually Jane Poole, to the Wall to give to John for protection. But John's just been stabbed, so that's not going to work out. Or it could be, uh, well, we don't know what's going to happen, but it's a thing. It's a situation to keep our eyes on. Not only is there an angry giant, angry free folk, angry knights, angry Melisandre. Well, I don't know if my Melisandre's angry, but she's there. We got angry ghost, the dire wolf. We got all sorts of stuff. We also have these people coming. Melisandre's above anger. Yeah, that's right. She's got bigger problems. Who can be angry at this when we've got the others to face? That's where we must direct our energy. So that's really wild. Nina suggests maybe she doesn't go there at all because if they hear what happens and they hear that John is dead, well, we don't want to take Arya there, <laughs> even though it's not Arya, which might mean going to Bravos directly, which was where Justin Massey was supposed to go next to fulfill Stannis' command of hiring mercenaries. Alsan may go with him if she can't go to the wall. I doubt that. I figure she'd stay in, in, the, in the south or stay in the north. But if Justin like, insists on taking Arya, again, Jane, with him, then Alisanne may feel compelled to go to, to look after her. Although she may also be like, she may figure it out on her own. She's like, that's not Arya. <laughs> she might ask some questions, kind of like the Umber did, to figure out whether that's really her. Now, in that case, she knew the answers. Theon t- coached her what to say, so she knew how to lie to convince her that she's a Stark, convince Umber that she's a Stark. It may not work on Alisanne. Alisanne has more time with her. They're traveling together rather than just all of a sudden Umber finds them at the base of the wall after they jumped and asked a few quick questions. <laughs> they have to run off because the horn's blowing. You know, this is slow going travel. There's a lot more time for them to talk. And if they do go to Bravos, then she might run into the real Arya. <laughs> so a lot of interesting possibilities there. And I'm super curious what that will be. My mind was just starting to speculate on what, what the chances were that Jane just will become Arya. She's like, uh, not exactly a Dread Pirate Roberts scenario, <laughs> but if Arya does just have this completely other life that takes over who she is, especially if she ever encounters Jane Poole and had some way to convey key things you need to know to be who I was. And I don't know. That could be it. Uh, yeah, she could, she could see Jane I, Poole and be like, I know you. <laughs> I don't think it's likely, but I think it's a potential. Yeah. Bravos could has a lot of potential to get more interesting for sure. So let's take Alisanne's jokish comment for a springboard into talking about Mormont skin changers. I don't think Gior was a skin changer. There's the theory out there about him because of his raven, but that really seems to be Blood Raven controlling that, that bird, not him. There doesn't seem to be a lot of evidence that he was in control of that. There's not none, but it isn't very strong. Still, like all Northerners, skin changers appear from time to time. There's got to be a Mormont skin changer or a few times in their history. It just seems unfathomable there wouldn't be. And why not a bear as their animal? I mean, it wouldn't have to be, but at some point, sure. There's had to be some Mormons with bears as their animal at some point. Veramir had a snow bear as his animal, one of his six skins, for example. So bears as animals used by skin changers is well established. This couldn't explain, though, the whole marriage thing. Though I don't think that there's some sort of magic in play where you take over the skin of a bear and then mate with a human? Yeah, I don't think so. That's, that doesn't work for me. <laughs> so I think this is a joke. She's leaning into the rumors. Like, that, that's, they're going to believe that about us. We may as well just say that. 
But I had this other. I idea. bet there's. Yeah, go ahead. I bet there's some truth to it. Uh, if not currently in the past, maybe even she might want to play it up being a joke to keep the truth at bay. Like maybe it is true, but she wants to make people think it is a joke. Yeah. I can see some value to that also. I like that idea, especially if you pair it with this other little theory I have, which is what if the Mormont women do go off to find someone to couple with? not necessarily their husbands. Or if they don't have a husband, they just go off. Because they want to find, just find like the biggest dude they can find. Be like, okay, I want this guy to father my children because we live on Bear Island and I need big children. <laughs> I need strong people. I want to breed with the biggest man I can find. If they did that sort of thing, they wouldn't broadcast it. But it would fit like this story of going off into the woods to find a bear. So, you know, it could be something along those lines where... That's a practice that they don't like to talk about, but it's a real thing. It's something to do out of necessity that they understand. The mainlanders wouldn't necessarily be cool with that. But there's a, there's a certain sense to it, a certain pragmatism to that. Well, I need strong sons and strong daughters. You know, Laness Hightower might not produce such a thing. <laughs> Your odds are better if both parents are big and, and strong. So, yeah, hmm. These dynastic marriages, sometimes you got to marry someone that isn't maybe uh, married for political reasons. Even on Bear Island, that might happen. So, well, it doesn't mean our kids have to have his genetics. <laughs> so, I don't know. That could, that could make sense to me. I'm not saying this is definitely what's happening, but if, if it did come out that that was the case, I'd be like, yeah, that totally fits. The inversion of this story is Tormund, who talks about having, you know, father of bears or whatever and, and having... It's like an inversion of this tale. And people have tried to connect these two stories, like Tormund is the father of Alisand's children, but nah, no, 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 no. Doesn't really fit time-wise or geography-wise or does it, really, it doesn't really make sense. What, is he just... He can't recognize... He's like, he was so drunk that he couldn't tell it was actually a woman? I mean, no, I don't think so. It's beyond tinfoil, I think. <laughs> yeah, what, he went all the way to Bear Island? Like, he walked over water? I mean, come on. They are like hundreds of leagues from each other. <laughs> this doesn't work. In the game Crusader Kings 2, which I stream most Fridays, there's a little fun code bit added where you can have Mormont bear characters. <laughs> you can occasionally have an <laughs> actual bear as the Lord of Bear Island, or just a bear it doesn't have to be a Mormon. There's just possible to have a bear as your character or to have a bear child and the bear can marry. And yeah, it's a little joke they coded in. <laughs> can you seek out other bears to mate with and to preserve the oh, yeah. bear lineage? <laughs> That's what your next, your next game should be. Is you need to get to do a bear game. Yeah. <laughs> That's a good idea. Now, as far as bears and the others, we've seen bears. We've seen bears as the animals bonded to skin changers. We also did see an undead bear at the fist. It killed Thorin Smallwood after he almost took its head off. It took his head off. Was basically how that went. And we saw an undead bear in the TV show. So yeah, it's definitely a thing. Any dead animal is is fair game for the others. <laughs> fair game. Fair game of Thrones. Fair game. Yeah, wild game, animal yeah. game. Yeah, hunting. Ib and Norvos are other places where bears are plentiful, for example, which are, as you said, you compared Ib to Bear Island before, Shea, and yeah, yeah, there you go. Even more, even more example there. Norvos has big forests. There's lots of bears. They have dancing bears there. Forest of Kohor has spotted bears. Let's talk about some real bears for a minute. We don't know what kind of bears exist on Bear Island. I'm not going to go 
super deep on bears because they're just a huge subject as well as a huge animal. But we can talk about island bears, specifically bears that live on islands because that would be the relevant ones here. Throughout our real-world explanations and explorations in the world of ice and fire, Valor Revitas, we've had examples of island dwarfism and island gigantism, both, throughout the series. And in this case, it's the latter. The largest bears on planet Earth are Kodiak bears. They're roughly the same size as polar bears, so you could also say polar bears are the largest. Both polar bears and Kodiak bears are descended from our brown bears, basically, even though polar bears aren't brown, but that's a, an adaptation. Kodiaks are exclusive to the Kodiak Archipelago in Alaska. They have been isolated from the mainland for about 12,000 years. There's about two of them every three square miles in those islands. So there's a lot of them. There's, they're up to 1,500 pounds, 10 feet tall when they stand on their hind legs, five feet tall on all fours. Despite that, cubs are born under one pound. So they're, wow. yeah, they're like human babies when they're born, but they uh, quickly grow. And like people, bears that leave home too early Aren't, that aren't parented properly become problems for other bears and for people. Kodiak Island is in that archipelago is the second largest island in the U.S. It's roughly the size of Cyprus. It's about the 80th largest island in the world. A couple hundred years ago, perhaps in a parallel to the Ironborn and the Bear Islanders, Russians took Kodiak Island and enslaved the Native Americans, uh, the Sugpiat people who were a fisher folk, very similar to the Native Bear Islanders. The Sugpiat people would sometimes hunt Kodiak bears. It was a, you know, something that only brave Sugpiats would do. And they would sometimes, and they would take, sometimes take the, the head of a bear and, and leave it out in the wilderness as a, to honor the bear spirits. The island with the most bears in the world is Admiralty Island. Why the hell is it called Admiralty Island? What kind of colonizer name is that? I mean, come on. It's also in Alaska. <laughs> There's 1,600 bears on Admiralty Island. Bears outnumber people three to one on Admiralty Island. There's also a Chikagoff Island named for some Russian admiral guy. I feel like bears should outnumber people 1,600 to one on that island. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe even to zero. <laughs> yeah, let the bears have the island. <laughs> That's closer to being the case than here on this Chikagoff Island, it's, which is also in Alaska. It has the most bears per square mile, but I couldn't find how many that actually is, just that it has the most bears per square mile. National Geographic did a story on Chickagoff Island in 2010, and they called it Bear Island. I mean, that probably should be its name. Or that Admiralty Island should be Bear Island, especially because, well, I'll tell you why, as we talk into this next section about the real Bear Islands. The southernmost island of the Svalbard Archipelago in the Barents Sea. Barents, <laughs> not ba Barents, yeah, yeah. That's the Barents is... Bear parents, the parent, yeah. <laughs> it was discovered in 1596 by two Dutch explorers, although it's speculated that the Vikings knew about it. It was named after a polar bear they saw swimming nearby. <laughs> so, as of 1920, it belongs to Norway. In the past, at various times, it was used for coal mining, whaling, and fishing, but no longer. There's, there's only a few people living there now. It's a, meteor, it's a weather station, meteorology study. 2002, it was declared a nature reserve. There's walrus, seals, and seabirds there. It's designated as an IBA. Sean, do you know what an IBA is? An International Bear Ale. It's an important <laughs> bird area. Okay. okay. <laughs> like, to me, that's hilarious because the fact that they, they wanted to keep it simple. But if you make it an acronym, then it's no longer simple because you don't know what it stands for. It's like, no, just call, if you wanted to call it an important bird area, you shouldn't shorten it because now we don't know what that means. Anyway, that's fun. Charlie Kelly knows what it means. <laughs> 
<laughs> the the only indigenous land animal on this bear island is the Arctic fox. <laughs> but there are polar bears there during the winter when the ice expands. So the only time there's bears on this bear island is when polar bears migrate there in the winter. And then sometimes they get left behind when the ice retreats and they're stuck there. But the ice just comes back next year and they're like, fine, no problem. They just go back the next year. There was a thriller set on Bear Island by Scottish author Alistair McLean in 1971. It was a huge success, so much so that eight years later, it was made into a movie starring Donald Sutherland, Richard Widmark, Vanessa Redgrave, and Christopher Lee. Pretty big names there. A lot of them before they were really big. But So that's Bear Island. Was it called Bear Island? Yeah. But wait, there's also Bear Islands in Canada. Yes, multiple. In James Bay, part yes, of the Belcher was. Islands in Nunavut in the Kikakatuk region, Kikataluk region. There's Bear Island and Two Cubs Island. They're black basalt outcrops. No one lives on them. But there's also in the Labrador Sea near Baffin Island, also in Nunavut in the Kikataluk region. <laughs> so just two Bear Islands that are in the same region as lo- along with Two Cubs Island. But wait, there are four other Bear Islands in Canada. There's one in New Brunswick, <laughs> one in Newfoundland and Labrador, one in Smith's Cove, Nova Scotia, and one in Lake Temagami, Ontario. Ah. But wait, there's multiples in Denmark. There's the Bjorn Islands, Bjorn Island, and Nanortalik Island, which means polar bear place or bear island. Bjorn is the Danish word for bear. <laughs> so Bjorn Islands is bear islands, Bjorn Island is bear island. But wait, there's two more bear islands in Norway. But wait, there's 11 bear islands in the U.S. <laughs> All, mostly in the, on the East Coast. Two of them are in Massachusetts. There's two more bear islands in Russia. There's another one shared by China and Russia. It's like an island in a river called Hexiazi, which translates to bear island in Chinese. Russia, their name for it isn't bear island. So it's called bear island by the Chinese. But Russia already has two other bear islands. <sighs> it didn't stop anyone else from naming a bear island over and over again. Correct. And I'm still not done. There's a bear island in Cork County, Ireland, and a bears island in Tasmania. So that was like 28 bear islands, which doesn't count bear island in Redwood City, California, because that's B-A-I-R. So we'll leave that one out. So this is reason number 740 that the world is stranger than fiction. How is it? that none of the islands with various metrics giving them differing forms of bear-oriented numerical superiority are called bear islands. None of them are. Well, all these other islands, 28 of them, most of which have no bears at all, are called bear islands. <laughs> <laughs> weird stuff, man. Like last week's quote. This is totally bringing that back. Casterly Rock lacks casterlies. The mander has no manderlies. There are no gardeners in high garden. <laughs> and then on the real world, bear islands, most of them have no bears. Thankfully, the Bear Island of Westeros is not a misnomer. There are both bears and bear-themed people there, and you don't want to mess with either of them. Yeah. (laughs) That's pretty cool. All right, questions from y'all. A couple here. We've got my own question is, how does hibernation work for bears when winters are so long? They must get really, really, really fat before winter. I mean... (laughs) You see those pictures of the really chonky bears like that go around the internet showing like the super fat bears before they prepare for hibernation. Westerosi bears must just really got to load up on those calories. 
<laughs> you know, I know a little <laughs> bit about this. The I think that hibernation has a relatively, we think of it generically, like you sleep for the winter or whatever. But I think there's like scientific measurements of like their metabolic rates and lowering a body temperature. And it a lot of rodents do this. And it, mm. I think it was like relatively recently, like in the 70s, they did research to to prove and understand that bears do it too. Oh, there's There's one primate that does it, by the way. And a lemur on Madagascar, an island where we see a lot of unique sort really? of evolution develop. Yeah, they hibernate. And wow. there's one bird that hibernates. Hmm. But a lot of times, the animals go through like dormancy, or there's even like more specific terms for what lizards do, and like maybe some insects or frogs that can like be frozen and come back. That all in that same realm. But but yeah, it has to do with like they lower they like something you don't necessarily even think about. But like when they're hibernating for months. Do they have to pee? Yeah. How, you know, how do they do that? Yeah. Wake up again. But their body actually uh, recycles the pee. They have processes to prevent muscles from decaying and to process proteins and to recycle urine in the body. And so it's a lot of interesting evolutionary things play into how hibernation actually works. Yeah, it's fascinating that they don't, their muscles don't atrophy in that whole, besides the urine thing, yeah. which is also fascinating. And that is a big deal for space flight. They're trying to study that hibernation techniques or how bears and other animals can do that in order to, because in space, muscle atrophy is a big deal and going through like cryo sleep, you know, trying to imagine like future tech and how that might go. Like, how do you, how do humans, how do you stop that from happening? How do you wake up after being months asleep and not be like a weakling? So yeah, that's Chris, very, it's really fascinating and they definitely don't understand it yet. So Christina Kay chimed in and said that the term when, rest, when, when reptiles do it is called rumination. Oh, yeah. Cool. She said reptiles hold their waist the whole time and take a gigantic crap when they wake up. <laughs> it's a humongous crap. It's <laughs> very satisfying. <laughs> I mean, that's if you've ever watched a movie where someone's in cryo sleep or land, there's occasionally that's the joke. Like they get out and you're just like this huge, take a huge pee and it's the most satisfying <laughs> moment. I don't ever. know movies where that's been the case. I'll, you'll have to think of that and tell me which ones. That I can't think of case. one off the top of my head, but I'm I know curious. there's. I don't think he did it in Futurama, but maybe he did after he left. I don't the, think he did either. Han Solo didn't do it. I don't yeah, think, I'm like, but, I'm trying to think about the iconic characters that, that were in that kind of state. And I'm like, I don't think I remember. Like, I'm trying to think of like Encino Man, you Ripley? know? Encino Man might have because it's a comedy. There's yeah. Definitely, there's definitely one I'm thinking of. And yeah, I can't, I can't think can, of it. If you but. all can think of it, let me know because I'm genuinely curious because I'm like that's a trope that I'm not familiar with. Uh, uh, Leah Rubenfeld, Austin Powers, Br- Bryce and Chunk says. I'm like, oh, oh, Austin, Austin Powers. Powers. Yeah, yes, I have that's seen Austin it. Powers. Boom, that okay. is it. Thank you. That's the one. Thank you, both of you. Thank you. Yes, appreciate that. As oh, usual, he says, uh, the, it was the in live Riddick, viewers maybe? coming through. Also, maybe it was in Riddick. I don't know Riddick enough. Though. Oh, Chronicles of Riddick. Yeah, or, or, or I don't know. Um, I don't know if it's Riddick. There were a couple Chronicles. of those movies. Yeah, yeah, I don't know which one, but Pitch Black was the first one. Yeah, but Pitch Black. They did have they did have cryo sleep in Pitch Black, so that oh, makes sense. Okay. Yeah. Hmm. Leah Rubenfeld wants us to go over where each Mormont is now. Yeah, we we sort of did this throughout the episode, but yeah, it'd be good to summarize. Okay, so we know Jorah is with the Second Sons. We know Gior is passed, and Daisy is passed. We have Mage, who is in the neck. Last we saw with. Jorel and Lyra. And they may have moved on from the neck, but that's the last we heard of them. Rob sent them in there. They have knowledge of his will and other things. So they avoided the Red Wedding. Alisan is on her way to the wall with Justin Massey and fake Ari. And I believe that's everyone. Yeah. And that's that. So trivia answer. The other house with a bear sigil. Looks like someone got it, huh? Yes. Donnie Stotts. Yes, Donnie Stotts got it pretty quickly. Yep. House Brune. Brune is basically the word bear. 
Um, yeah, that is that is the tra- I mean, not spelled exactly like that. German or something? Or? Yeah, I think, I think it's in multiple languages. Okay. But um, so there you go. There we go. Is that, is that related? Was Brunation? Was that the lizard hibernation? Brunation? Yeah, is that, I wonder, related? Brunation. Brunation. That's funny. Though. Y'all remember, maybe um, if, you, if, you, if you're spacing out on who House Brun is, that's the House of Lothar Brun. Remember the, the one who is Littlefinger's King of the Hill people? Who is maybe okay. not so bad. He, he protected Sansa from Marillion and yeah. So he's... Uh, one of the Bruins, and he's the one, he was also rejected by his family. He tried to go show up at Castle Bruin, and they were like, get the hell out of here. We don't need you. <laughs> so that wasn't very cool. Our Patreon supporters have voted on next week's episode, as we do every week. And the picked episode this time will be the free city of Lorath. Lorath. The place where Jockin Hagar claims he's from probably isn't, given he's a faceless man, but he will be part of the episode nonetheless, along with all the other fun details we can come up with about Lorath. It's one of the more remote and different of the free cities. It's probably perhaps the most culturally distinct, but we'll be exploring that. You can judge for yourself and let us know what you think. Certainly send anything you want to send us about Lorath ahead of time if you've got questions or comments or things you know that you think we might not. We'd be grateful to hear it. Thanks as well for anyone who came today. We appreciate your presence. We appreciate your comments. We appreciate your being a part of this fandom. We are here to have a good time. And I think we succeeded today, as I think we do most times. If I do say so myself, I'm certainly having a good time. So at least one of us is is happy. (laughs) Thanks to Nina for the great notes. Check out goodqueenalley.tumblr.com for more of her thoughts and great takes. Appreciate it if you're a supporter via Patreon, via our website, via Anchor Spotify, or however you participate. Thanks to Joey, Jesse, and Kevin for the History of Westeros music. Thanks to Michael Klarfeld for the History of Westeros intro and for the awesome maps, check out claradox.de. That's K-L-A-R-A-D-O-X. Claradox.de for Michael's stuff. Thank you to the History of Westeros mods for keeping things smooth on our various sites where we discuss things. And also, again, a reminder that Ice and Firecon 2022 is still putting out panels. There, every couple days, another one is released. One of the most recent ones was the Game of Thrones effect panel that Shea was on with Zach Louie and David J. Peterson, language creator. That was a really good panel. I already shared it with our YouTube. I shared it from there, so you can go to, straight to YouTube and find it that way, or just go to Ice and Firecon's YouTube. Yeah, you can also see it, a link in the chat right now. And that panel specifically is about references to Game of Thrones and A Song of Ice and Fire in movies, TV shows, music, about other effects that Game of Thrones has had, about tattoos. Like, like we had some people come up who had tattoos on their body from Game of Thrones. It, it was a really fun time. Please, please enjoy listening to that and give it a, and a comment on the Ice and FireCon YouTube page. Yeah, give Ice and FireCon. I think Tara just set up a Patreon for Ice and FireCon too, didn't she? I believe she it launches had, on June first. Oh, okay. I thought okay. they had a Patreon for Ice and Fire Con. It's the for it's for the geekiery for her for for her for her yeah. personal stuff that is set up. Ice and Fire Con has had a Patreon, and yeah, that right. exists. Okay. I think we um, are patrons. <laughs> yeah, so like, they definitely have a Patreon. It's the Tara, who is of course the regent, the runner of 
Eisenbeiercon is setting up one for the Geekiary, which is her own publication. Yeah. So, so there's probably a lot of crossover between hers and Ice Fire yeah. but she has oh, yeah. other stuff going on yeah, beyond that yeah. too. So yeah, yeah it makes right. sense. That's right. Our friends over at Here Be Dragons are reviewing the premiere of the Obi-Wan Kenobi show, which dropped last week. Um, a lot of you have probably watched it already, Shay and I have. We enjoyed it very much. So that'd be a good place to go if you're looking for some analysis or just geeking out about Star Wars stuff. And we will see you all next week for more Valar Reredus, Laura, and onward. Until next time, everybody. We'll see ya. And Valar re-reads. <laughs> <laughs>